Oh, what's going on? I'm Brian No. He's Jimmy Cook here on the fan. That was Tyrese Halliburton and new pacer Jimmy Obi Toppin. What is this, Lob City all over again? <laughs> <laughs> Having flashbacks? I mean, yeah, look, I'm, I'm excited about it. He, 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 at least at a minimum, with what Obi Toppin's career has been, have been highlight dunks. So at minimum, the idea of that being on the floor with Tyrese Halliburton, I'm ready to see that. Uh, we talked about it a little bit last week. I'm hopeful that it is just a product of Tom Thibodeau expects a certain level out of players, and it's very easy to fall out of love and rotation there. I'm hopeful greener pastures, low-risk, high-reward type of move bringing Obi Toppin in here. By the way, I'm, I'm trust me, Jimmy, I'm not correcting you here. I promise you. Sure. But um, like it, it can't be – I think it's Thibodeau. But his nickname is Tibbs. Sure. We got to pick a lane. I agree. Like, is it Thibodeau and his nickname is Tibbs? I or agree. is it Thibodeau and his nickname is Thibbs? Like, we got to do something here where it, it lines up, right? It's gotten to the point where it is a, dare I say, an epidemic amongst sports broadcasters where you're going to get tomato, tomato with Tom Thibodeau, regardless of which way you go with it, to the point that, yeah, I interchange them now because I, I, I don't know. Yeah, don't know I, anymore. I, I, just, I hear both. I know it's Tibbs. Right. That's all I know yep. at this point, right? Yeah, but uh, how about the Summer League? Are you into this thing? You watching the Pacers? Are you checking out Wemby? Are you looking at the high draft picks or, or not at all? I'm sprinkling a little bit of everything. What makes me look the other way is positive or negative when we have, because ESPN and the NBA can't help themselves, knee-jerk headlines of, oh, is Wembenyama really going to work out because he only had seven <laughs> points in his opening debut? What does it mean? And then he has 27 the other night, and it's like, oh, this is the player everybody expected him to be. It, it, it's Summer League. I love I love Summer League. I love Las Vegas. I've been there for the event. It is a great time. It's an economically sensible event in terms of once you're there from a ticket standpoint. It's like $25 general admission. It's a great time if you're an NBA fan. But what I'm not here for is the knee-jerk reaction of, oh, this guy's going to be a bust, or, oh, this is all NBA, pencil him in, because it's July 10th. Yeah, yeah. Have you watched any? You. Oh, yeah, I, I've watched Wemby. I've been interested in seeing Wembenyama because of all the hype, and it was just funny. I've caught bits and pieces. I haven't cleared my schedule and sat down and watched it every game from beginning to end. But I watched a decent amount yesterday because of the overreaction mainly to the first game where he's two for 13 from the field and it's like, oh my gosh, what's happening over here? And then he goes for, I think, 27 and 12 last night, sprinkles in three blocks. It's like this dude's 19 years old. Give it a second, you know? He's uncomfortable. It's going to take a little bit of time to get comfortable and like he said I, I didn't even know what I was doing out there <laughs> so it's like, literally this is his quote honestly I didn't really know what I was doing on the court tonight <laughs> <laughs> that was after his first summer league game and so it's it's gonna take a little bit of time we live in such a microwavable sports society where you want it immediately and it's like it's not gonna take two seconds to microwave results and presto you got it you know it's gonna take a little bit of time Two headlines after that 27-point performance. Webinyama shows why he earned generational hype and mm. why Webinyama's bounce-back performance was special. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, who's he going up against as well? Right. You know, are these, any of these dudes going to be on the Blazers roster getting major minutes? I mean, I know Shaden Sharp will be, but anybody that is guarding... Wemby or trying yeah. to D him up. I, I don't know if there's anybody out there that's going to get major minutes. This is the, I mean, it, it, 
it's as close to like an early preseason as anything, but it's minus 15 because you have players that are either journeyman players that have been fighting for summer league invites, which a handful of them got not full scale journeyman, but like two year, three year vets and then rookies or first year players that they want to throw out there just because they want to get a little bit of rep for them under the summer. Outside of that, this is not, as most people know, the type of competition you're going to be facing on a nightly basis in the NBA. So it's good to get that first introduction for it. And I appreciate what Summer League is just from a NBA continuing to give us the sport and continuing to have it be a part of our lives, just like the NFL does being a 365, 24-7 deal. But you can only take so much stock out of it because... Yeah. There's no real measurement of, wow, he just did that against LeBron James today. Or, oh, man, did you see Wemby in the post against Joel Embiid? Like it, that's not what's taking place out in Las Vegas. Right. I do think that summer league takeaways make more sense than NFL preseason I would agree. takeaways. I would agree. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because if you look at just the sport of basketball, there are going to be some shots that Wembenyama makes or anybody else makes. And you're like, that was an impressive shot. Like, that's going to translate. Shot making is going to translate. Granted, when you're going up against ones, might be tougher to come by. But when Binyama had one bucket where it was a late entry pass last night, and he did this weird kind of gliding to his right, spin around, bank shot, and it was like, oh my gosh, where did that come from? <laughs> Just the wingspan, it's like, that's going to translate to the regular season when you're going up against ones. But in the NFL, especially now, Jimmy, where a lot of these main dudes, they just rest. They don't even play in the preseason at all. So if you're a quarterback like Anthony Richardson and you throw to a dude who's just wide open, fans will always be captivated. I remember Justin Fields with the Bears. One of his first games was against the Bills a few years ago. Littered with number twos out there. Just like the backups. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> did you see the throwing ability? It's like, yeah, I saw him throwing to a wide open guy because he was covered by a two. Like that, I have far less takeaways from NFL preseason games than the summer league. The thing where the preseason has takeaways that are reasonable is once you get past 1v2s. When you're looking at 2v2s or perhaps like third team option guys that are fighting for roster spots, yeah. that's where you can get evaluations. Oh, okay, there's growth and progress. And not to say that when you have the handful of series that are ones versus ones, you can't still have good takeaways, but it's understood amongst NFL media, amongst scouts, amongst the entirety of the league that once you get past those first three drives, if one team leaves ones out there and the twos are out there, it makes for great social media highlights, but you then need to bring yourself back down to earth like you were saying and realize, okay, well, who's he really doing that against? Oh, it's a cornerback that was on the practice squad for the Panthers last year. Okay, let's let's take a breath for just a second. You know what? I hadn't thought about this until right now, Jimmy, is if you think about the NFL preseason, how much run do you think Anthony Richardson gets there? Because our focus has been on, is he going to be the starter come week one? But I'm curious how many reps he's going to get with the starters in the preseason, right? Do you have any yeah. guess as far as that goes? I don't because of how mysterious the Colts have been to this point of, oh, well, the day the media was here, that just wasn't Anthony Richardson's day. It was Minshew's day. Like All of that secrecy is going to evaporate once training camp starts here in about three weeks, and then you're getting to see real time on a daily basis who's taking the reps in training camp. But to your point, of how preseason has been devalued and it's hard to get as much 
of an evaluation out of what the players are really doing. My focus for a clearer answer, and maybe I'm in the wrong on this, you can push back against it, of who's going to be the starter, who's getting the majority of the reps is who's running with the ones with those joint practices. Because Mm. that, so much now in today's NFL, those joint practices are where you see more of a real-world simulation, even though there's no real crowd there, like on an NFL Sunday. You'd think the preseason would be the point A to point B there. It's not that anymore. It's joint practices where you see more consistency of 1v1s that take place. They're going to have that against the Bears. They're going to have that against the Eagles. And both of those are where I'm more focused for a clear-cut answer of how many reps are really divvying up in the lead-up to Week 1. Yeah, it is a guessing game from the outside world looking in. You know what I mean? Is yeah. And what I mean, the outside, the inside is the Colts organization. <laughs> right? Like it's, it's Chris Ballard. It's Jim Ursay. Yeah. It's Shane Steichen. It's the brain trust. What are they basing it on? And on the outside looking in, we're just looking for clues. We're looking for clues that indicate, or we're at the poker table and it's like their left eyebrow kind of raised when I said something about pocket Kings. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they might have pocket Kings. That's what we're doing. Yeah. But yeah, it, I don't know if they know yet, you know, because they want to see how the preseason plays itself out. They want to see how training camp plays itself out. You've got Anthony Richardson with fewer than 400 career passing attempts in college football. I don't think in their secrecy binders, it's like Richardson starts week one, come hell or high water. You know, <laughs> they got to see. Yeah, they got to see it play out in training camp and in preseason. So they're trying to put the pieces together as well. You know how we talk about in the actual regular season whenever you have a rookie quarterback waiting in the wings and you bring them up, let's just say week three for the sake of argument, but then they really struggle and teams will make the no-no mistake of pulling said rookie then after that. Like I'm I'm always a believer of once you break the glass, you roll with it, right? You don't try to put the pieces back together on a rookie quarterback. In this similar vein... How true, if at all, does that carry over in your mind with the preseason and training camp? Like if we see, for instance, not to start training camp, but first preseason game or joint practice, it's pretty clear Anthony Richardson is running with the ones. Does that same ripple effect occur if all of a sudden by the second preseason game, it's actually Gardner Minshew that's getting the majority of the reps? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And I think that there's nothing wrong with not even publicly saying, but through your actions saying, he's just not quite ready yet. Sure. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it would be way worse to shoehorn him in there and be like, you know, deep down, we don't think he's really ready. But the, And you just talk yourself into it. The best way you learn is by doing and being on, under center and all this stuff. Like you're just talking yourself into it. I would much rather see Anthony Richardson start, say, week seven against the Browns. Sure. Instead of week one, if he's not ready, if he's, I always go back to this, Jimmy, which is, are you ready enough where you're not likely to form bad habits? You know what I mean? I don't expect you to be a finished product, but if you don't have the offense down cold enough and all of a sudden you're getting happy feet and your eyes are looking at the defensive line instead of downfield. And now we got bad habits going on. If you see him as a candidate, to form bad habits, there's nothing wrong with starting Minshew and waiting. I would much rather have that than what you said. Start him week one, he struggles the first couple of weeks, and then you're thinking about yanking him? That's way worse. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to have a situation unfold where you're having to double back or say, we made a mistake right out of the gate of starting him. That's not the type of introduction of the NFL you want for Anthony Richardson. And back to your point on 
how do you know if he's ready or not? I mean, that could be as simple as within the preseason, within training camp, within team practices. If he's missing audible reads, if he's not picking up blitzes, if his timing's off, if it feels like that he is not having an understanding for what Shane Steichen wants with the offense, then maybe you need to reel him in a little bit and start the season with Minshew. If it's just, okay, a couple incompletions here or there, but you know, the the concept was down, right? Like, yeah. think about if you're having an approach shot with golf and you're trying to get it on the green. Well, okay, if you shank it into the, you know, opposing fairway, then, all right, maybe we have some problems there with your game. But if it's mm. eh, we're just a little bit to the left, that's a 50-foot putt versus the, you know, 20 or 15-foot putt you were looking for. Okay, we can fine-tune that. We can adjust that. There are layers to it, and that is the difficult part of there might not be a secret binder at West 56th Street right now with who's starting week one. But there is a clearer picture than what we have of, okay, this is how we need to attack once training camp starts. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, man. I'm very curious about that. Brian Noah and Jimmy Cook with you here, 93.5 and 107.5, the fan. So, um, Ellie De La Cruz, pretty interesting player, right? So over the weekend... Starring for the Reds, who they've got 50 wins at the All-Star break, Jimmy. The Reds had 62 wins all of last season. That's insane. (laughs) And think about this, too, man. It's like JMV's Reds versus my Cardinals. What a difference one year makes. Listen to this. The Reds, last year, they finished 31 games back of the Cardinals. But now, at the All-Star break, the Reds are leading the Cardinals by 11 and a half games. (laughs) <laughs> That's insane the turnaround for both of those squads. Yeah, I mean, look, I will say this. Again, this is filing underneath that people don't care because it's not within the city. Uh, for once, as a, as a Yankees fan, I am happy <laughs> to not be involved with, like, if this is happening in Toronto, for example, if Ellie De La Cruz is in there and it, with the Blue Jays, I would be just very angry across the board because it's like, of course, it's another piece to the division and all this. But I could sit back and I, I don't have a dog in this fight. I mean, I, I, I like Ellie De La Cruz. I like the Reds. I mean, I, I can just put my feet up and watch him steal second. Oh, no, he's stealing third. Oh, he's going to steal home, too? Oh, yeah. great. Okay. Most electrifying place player in baseball it is. All right. There we go. We have it established. Good to know. That is it's crazy. <laughs> and, and that's the part. I'm glad you brought that up because this is how it sounded on Bally Sports Ohio with him stealing everything. Here you go. David Cruz goes. Pitch called a strike. Throw down on a skip. Wait, another steal. He takes off again. Pitch down and in. Fade throw. There's no chance. Two steals. David Cruz had already looked a couple of times at Brian Anderson knowing that if he got a jack. That's ridiculous, man. (laughs) Dude, he is. He's an electrifying player. And who he's playing for, Jimmy, think about the Reds and how putrid they've been for so long. And all of a sudden it's like, boom, you're leading the division and you've got this phenom in the making in De La Cruz. That is the best of both worlds for those fans. They were 27 and 33 on June 6th when he got the call up. They're 23 and 7 since then and now have a two game lead in the NL Central. It's just, it's wild. Like, even that, you talk about the year over year struggles the Reds have had, but even just that small window of this season to where they were, to where they are now going into the All Star break. 
it now shifts, though, Brian, all the pressure in the world, not, not on necessarily the players, not on necessarily management, it puts it on ownership with Cincinnati Reds because, yes, yeah, it's a two-game lead, and that's great, but now all of a sudden, all these last couple years of, of sell-offs or getting rid of players or, or making just very boneheaded, weird financial decisions to put out a product that was, as you mentioned, abysmal, now there's a real window here with De La Cruz. And for the first time in a handful of trade deadlines, and that's coming up here in a couple of weeks, the Reds are viewed as buyers potentially within this market. And they're going to have to spend something, whether it's capital, whether it's players, more on the payroll, a combination of all three, to take advantage of this opportunity. Because even in baseball, as weird as that sport is, and it looks like De La Cruz is the next franchise-altering player, it takes more than just one guy in this sport. They need sure. to capitalize on the opportunity that's in front of them right now. Yeah, think about how all-world Shohei Otani is mm-hmm. and where the Angels are, just hovering around 500. It's amazing, too, when you start thinking about buyers and sellers. Think about some of these teams, like the Mets, who have the highest payroll in baseball, the Padres, who have this incredibly high payroll. And they're looking at the standings, and they're like, what is happening right now? Meanwhile, the Reds are 50-41 and 41 at the All-Star break. Now, going back to the most thrilling man in the sport, this is what, what Joey Votto said about his teammate. Check this out. Nobody does that. And I, I, you know, I mentioned this when before he got here, when he first got here. We're going to see things that you just do not see on a baseball field. Yeah, he's talking about him stealing second, third, and home, <laughs> which was insane. But are you putting? I find this interesting, Jimmy. The most thrilling man in the entire sport doesn't mean the best player, but the most thrilling. Where you are, if you go to the game, this player is making you say, "Wow." That's unreal. Are you going to the game and saying that about Ellie De La Cruz? Or is it Shohei Otani? Or somebody else? But in my mind, it's down to those two players. Right now, going into the All-Star break, it's Ellie De La Cruz. And I am, I'm mapping this off a number of different reasons. But the easiest and simple way, and what baseball's been trying to grasp at for the last couple of years most notable with these rule changes they had at the start of the season with the pitch clock and making the bases a little bit bigger is trying to captivate a younger audience and keep Mm -hmm. people's attention span on the game. Now, whether or not they're doing that over the course of nine innings is a conversation for another day, but in terms of social media engagement and what are the viral clips that they're sending out, what is getting the most interaction from not just baseball fans, from the casual fans, and over the last just two weeks alone – it's been Ellie De La Cruz. So for me, again, it's not to mean the best player in baseball, mm-hmm. but just the most thrilling. I need to see him on a nightly basis to see what's going to happen. Yeah, it's Ellie De La Cruz for me. It is close. Sometimes I'll let you know, hey, you know, it's not close. It's him by a wide margin. Anytime, this is now multiple years where Shohei Otani, who's a comparable, oh, Babe Ruth, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> that, that's a pretty fun watch. We need to be a part of that. It, it is a close battle, but for me, it's De La Cruz right now. What about you? It's it's tomato tomato. Okay. I hear your argument completely. It's just it's opinion. It's personal preference, sure. really. It's not factual whatsoever. I would go with Otani myself because I'm picturing myself going to the game and Ellie De La Cruz for sure is going to make me say wow like multiple yeah. times based on what he's doing on the field. But Shohei Otani, nobody is doing what he's doing. If you go to a game when when he's pitching, let's say the blister heals and he's pitching again. 
Like, he's striking out people left and right. He has over 100 hits and 100 strikeouts for the third straight season, this season included. Nobody's done that in the history of baseball. (laughs) That's insane. (laughs) So you go to a game where he's striking out hitters as a pitcher, and then he's one of the best hitters in the game also? That is on a next-level basis. And although Ellie De La Cruz can produce highlight after highlight, there are other players that do similar things. There's no one who does anything similar to what Shohei Otani does. So I would put him at the top of the list as far as the most thrilling man in the sport. And it's hard to fully argue that because you're right. Because for years and years and years, rightfully so, it is no longer a, that's why Babe Ruth is the name that comes up so often. Pitchers are not doing what he's doing. They don't have the, it's not within something that they practiced growing up. It's not something in their arsenal of having that kind of power, that kind of just monstrosity capabilities with the bat and also being a very high level pitcher year in and year out. So the fact that he's able to do both, I don't know. This is this is weak on my part, I understand, but it almost feels unfair. And that's also what I <laughs> that's what that's what opponents feel too, right? Because oh, not only does this guy because like, it's one thing to be able to dominate a couple of plays like an outfielder or a shortstop throughout a game, right? But a pitcher it's just as much of a weight, if not more, than an individual slugger, right? You, you are literally carrying the way this game is going to go based on how efficient you are on the mound. And yeah, when you combine both of those attributes, slugging and being a great pitcher, it's the same reason he's going to win the MVP almost every year he's eligible. And the only reason yeah. he won't is voter fatigue, like we saw with LeBron a handful of years. If you take it back to basketball, you see it in the NFL all the time as well of just MVP voter fatigue. Maybe that happens with Otani. But outside of that, the things he's doing set him on a stratosphere alone. If Otani deserves to win MVP for the next 10 years in a row, it's a crime not to vote for the guy. <laughs> I really, it's, I don't care if he wins the next 12 in a row. Like what he's doing, it's on another level. Yeah. And so I, I hate, I, I hear you, trust me. Like the whole voter fatigue We've seen thing. It. Oh, gosh, I hate that so much. We have, and it's ridiculous. I think we saw it a bit with the NBA this past season with Nikola Jokic versus Embiid. Yes. If you want to make your argument that Embiid had a better season, okay, I'll listen to your argument. But if your argument begins with, I mean, you can't give it to Joker for a third straight year. I don't want to hear anything you have to say because that is a ridiculous argument. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. It needs to be just on merit alone. Cover up the players' names, look at everything of their body yeah. of work, and then tell me who you think the better player is. It should be in a vacuum. Yes. It's just this season, this season alone, whether it's baseball, basketball, ball, football, what have you. A little bit later, we'll compare notes here, Jimmy, as far as the most thrilling man in the NFL, the NBA. Uh, Maybe we'll sync up. Maybe we'll be on different sides of the the table again here. But I think that's an interesting conversation. We got a lot to do. We've got a brand new, uh, I don't know what you call it, situation in the NBA. I'm not exactly captivated by this. We'll see if Jimmy is. That's on the way. I'm Brian No, He's Jimmy Cook. Keep it locked right here. 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. I'm Brian No, He's Jimmy Cook. Here on The Fan. You an Eminem guy, Jimmy? I like a little Slim Shady. Yeah, why not? You like some Slim Shady? Yeah, I'm an Eminem guy as well. I asked Nate, who's with us today. I was like, you a heavy metal guy? It's the first question I asked him. He's like, nah, not really. (laughs) 
is, is that I just imagine you at like a convention or a conference hall of some kind for sportscasters and, and, and once you're getting into like you know just the small talk affair that some people hate some people enjoy uh-huh. at some point musical preference comes up naturally oh, what kind of music are you into do you lead off with that or do you lead off with what you did to Nathaniel and what you did to Eddie and what you did to me which you a metal guy like do you go straight for did it I, did I lead off with did, all you, you guys like you that did. Yep. did I really yes. yep That's right. I don't know I don't know what comes out of my mouth half the time you know <laughs> it's just however I feel in the moment sure um so it's funny that I asked you guys all the same question but now I don't think it's my go-to I was very pleasantly surprised James who is the uh producer of JMV show mm-hmm. I asked him as well, and he's like, yeah, love metal. I was like, what? <laughs> like, that was awesome. It's always a pleasant surprise when someone has good taste. You know what I mean? Yeah, I imagine that's a big jumping off point for you. Right There you go again with the, with the high taste thing. Now, that's a measurement where, okay, this guy, he, he must be from a good cut. I get him. it now. Yeah, okay. that, yeah, this guy, he's got, some, he's got some cachet over here, this metal guy. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we're going to bond over the uh, NBA Cup over here, Jimmy. It's the new in-season tournament that's been unveiled. This is so stupid. Are you on board with this? I'll give the details of this stupid idea in a second. You think this is going to be big for the NBA? So I'm not on board with it as a flag carrier. I'm not saying, yes, finally, in-season tournament, NBA Cup. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I will be there because I love the NBA and assuming you can bet on it, that that's pretty much the prerequisite for me. If you're having an entertaining product and I can throw a little bit of cash on it, then we're good. That's fine. I'll, I'll enjoy. I'll get behind it. Uh, in terms of the setup of it, NBA Cup is lame. Like just mm. out of the gate, I want I want a I want a sexier name than that. Just the NBA Cup. I mean, it, <laughs> it's like Pixar wrote it for you. Like I just don't. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not here for that. Uh, the idea of Las Vegas. I mean, that's that, that's good. That's a, it's been a center stage of the league with summer league. So I'm I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. But no, I'm not. Like I don't have pom poms here for the NBA with it. We knew this was coming for three years or for for two years, three years with rumors, and then the the makeup of it. And now we have the name, and it's just like letting the air out of a balloon. Oh, the NBA Cup. Can't wait. Yeah, it's uh, – so they're ripping it off of soccer, basically. Yep. It's like the European in-season tournament. Yep. The thing that's different, though, Jimmy, and you know this, the postseason structure is so much different for the NBA. They actually have a playoff structure. Correct. You know what I mean? Everybody knows the NBA playoff format. You have numerous series, and then you eventually crown a champion. That's not what you have in European soccer. They use the regular season, you know? So the in-season tournament means a whole lot more. That's where it differs with the NBA, where the way this is going to work out, very similar to soccer. So you're going to have three groups of five teams in each conference, and they're going to be divvied up differently based on like who stacked up where in the previous season. Or however the NBA feels like constructing it. They've unveiled these groups, if you will. And so you have four games. Then you get to the knockout stages. And it's single elimination. So they're going to play this on Tuesdays and Fridays. In November, they'll have the championship game uh, on December 9th. I I just think it's stupid, man. I get that you're trying to put lipstick on the pig. Right? Like, we know it's football season, November, December. They're trying to do something to stand out. I just think, Jimmy, initially, the worst thing that could happen is if a team that's either not a a championship contender this season wins the NBA Cup 
or a team that doesn't have a whole lot of great history, doesn't have an illustrious past. Because if the Clippers win this, if the the Jazz or someone just messes around and gets on a hot streak and wins the first NBA Cup, it's going to be a complete punchline. It's going to be like, well, the Clippers haven't won a championship, but they got the NBA Cup. Like They need a team with some cachet to win this thing. I hope two things, both comedic value here. One, I hope the Knicks win it so that the championship banner <laughs> that, that, that is hanging up there yeah. at MSG is the NBA Cup. That That's the one that, that ends a, a championship drought for them. Uh, this goes back to your conversation about Final Four banners and the value there. Like, uh-huh. How many teams, when they win the NBA Cup, like the league, you're right, would love for it to be a bigger market team to win it, to have some cachet with it. You really think that over at Staples or Crypt.com or whatever the heck it is in L.A. nowadays, yeah. that with all those championship banners, there's going to be a separate spot in the rafters for the NBA Cup. You think that's oh, going to be gosh. highlighted with the rest of those championships? Same with the Celtics. Like, I I don't know. I will say the other thing that I'm really looking forward to from this is the national narratives that happen. For oh. instance, <laughs> let's say just that, like, we'll use the Knicks again, that they win it all, right? And, and Julius Randle has an incredible performance and they win the NBA Cup, but then we get to the playoffs and they get bounced in the first round. <laughs> Julius Randle, he can do it in the Cup, but he can't do it in the playoffs. I, I'm looking forward oh. for those type of uh, uh, cheesy reactions from the national media, if anything. It's so true, and it's going to be by the <laughs> boatloads of just it's gonna be tongue-in-cheek you know this isn't a serious thing and you brought up a great point I, I might have it wrong I think that if a team that doesn't have an illustrious history if they win the NBA Cup that's not ideal but take the flip side of it what if it's the Lakers what if it's the Celtics and they win this, and they've got all these championship banners. What do they care about the NBA Cup? They're not going to highlight it in their home arena. That could be bad, too. There's no winning. There's no (laughs) winning with the NBA. Either a team that hasn't done anything in its past, that's not ideal, or a team that's had this great history, that's not ideal either. That banner is going in a hallway in the TD Garden where occasional people in Section 240 get to see it on their way up to the seats. It's not going up in the rafters. No way. No shot. (laughs) Unless it's like a mandate from the NBA of, oh, you have to put it up there. There's no way. That's the thing, man, is some things work in certain sports and don't work in others. We could do that game all day. But if you think about soccer, like penalty kicks, I think they work. I know that's a controversial topic here, but just follow me on this. There's not going to be the equivalent of penalty kicks in the NBA. Yeah. It just doesn't translate. And that's where I think this in-season tournament is. Yeah, it might work for soccer. It's not going to work in the NBA. It's going to be a punchline more than anything. And with all that being said, this is going to be a little bit nuanced here. I give the NBA some credit for trying where they're like, look, man, it's the heart of the football season. If we're just rolling out our regular season games, you know, it's only going to get so much attention. Let's just do something a little bit different. Let's try it out. Like, I get the thought process, and I actually like that they're thinking outside the box. I just don't think they've come up with something that's going to have real legs and real value. I think it's going to be a punchline more than anything. Well, and the reason it's able to work for soccer and work in Europe isn't just because the 
tournaments that are there have long hundred year histories of of pedigree behind them already to the point that by the time it got super popular here stateside at UEFA Champions League and Europa League by the time those got over here as like must-see television even then it's not fully captivated but you get what I'm saying it mm-hmm. was well established in Europe like it's not a a punchline or a punching right. bag it is all oh, this is the Champions League and it's an easier concept to grasp because Let's just take Manchester City, who won the Champions League and won the Premier League, their league in England this past year. They weren't playing Barcelona in the Premier League. It's their own separate English football league that's based off of how you finish the regular season in standings, right? There's no playoff. Mm -hmm. You brought that up earlier. With the Champions League, you're playing all of Europe. United States, it's all compacted into one league already. So there's not like an extra selling point about this in-season tournament other than, oh, yes, uh, Indiana gets to go up against Chicago again. Border wars. Yeah, like that. that's, that's what you're relying on here, if anything, to kind of get the early juices flowing with this. I'm willing to give it a chance because you're right. There's some credit for trying something new, and they realize that the slog of the regular season is getting lost by the casual fan but does it do enough and how much time do we need to give the NBA Cup of a sample size to be able to see, okay, this is something that's new and interesting? Yeah, and uh, this makes no sense to me either, which is all these games will count toward regular season stats except for the championship <laughs> game. What is that? I don't, I don't understand. Like, it's the same thing. It's the same thing with the play-in, right? Like, like I, I get it. To an extent, but you want to sell to teams and the fans that the NBA play-in tournament is a postseason berth. You want to acknowledge that, but you separate it away from all the other stats in NBA history of the playoffs. So you do that, you take it off the board, and then with this in-season tournament, pick a lane. You talked about that earlier. Either have everything that's with this tournament count for stats or none of it. It, it looks worse when you say ah, everything but that championship. <laughs> we want that in a separate wing on its own. That makes Ugh. no sense. I, I really I can't wrap my mind around it where it would make a little more sense if you said, hey, all of the preliminary games, everybody's playing these four games before we get to the knockout stage. So these first four games that everybody plays, it's an equal amount of games. We're going to count those. Anything from the knockout stage on, we're not counting because it's an uneven amount of games. At least that would make sense. They're like, no, just a championship game. That's the only one that doesn't count toward statistics of the regular season. That makes absolutely no sense. There's another problem or fear I have with all this as well. There are... I don't know off the top of my head how many, but at least four international events in Europe that take place on a yearly basis. You have the Champions League, and then you have, like, just for example, the FA Cup, which is a separate thing, but again, it's uh, across the board with all of European football. And what happens is for some of these lesser value tournaments, like the FA Shield or the FA Cup, like once you get to a certain stage, you have the top shelf teams like Manchester City or Liverpool that will put out second unit guys out there for these tournaments that don't have as much cachet as other ones, like middle Mm -hmm. rounds of these tournaments. If you're a veteran team, like the Phoenix Suns, for example, and you have players that their window is either closing or it's close to the Golden State Warriors where they're older, we're trying to win NBA finals. Like that's what we want to capture. 
Are we going to have G League call-ups here? Like, what happens with the NBA if that happens, where it's like, ah, oh, this is a, a group stage game. We're not going to put our A's out there. We're going to make a call-up to the Santa Cruz Warriors, and, and that's going to be part of our starting five. What happens there for the league if that happens? Oh, you know what I'm absolutely rooting for here, Jimmy? I hope. <laughs> oh, it would be so good. I hope we get to the championship game of the NBA Cup. And somebody rests a star player for load management. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we're going to sit this one out. He's he's played these last five games in a row or whatever the logic is. How great would that be if like the Clippers make it there and it's like, you know, Paul George and Kawhi, they were hurt during the postseason. We don't want to risk that again. So you know what? They're just going to sit this one out. Oh, that would be so... Especially in the first year of this thing. Well, and that's what I'm worried about out of the gate. Like, you're right. It takes a whole different center stage if it happens in the finals of the NBA Cup. But, like, if I'm a team that is of the type of prestige the NBA would ideally want to win this thing, and my window is now, and Golden State's probably the best example of any, or you could use the Suns, like I mentioned... I'm not trying to, even though it's not added games, like I guess that's where you're trying to cut it off at the pass if you're the NBA, right? We're not adding games. It's still regular season contests. So maybe this doesn't cause a problem and it's fine, but you're still going to have that same motivation from teams, even with the NBA threatening more fines and penalties of, yeah, LeBron's not going to play in this quarterfinal game of the NBA Cup. We're, We're resting him for load management. Like if that happens, you're already behind the eight ball of the NBA of trying to sell this a legitimate product because if your players don't view it as legitimate, how are your fans going to join it? Oh, oh, that would be tremendous, man. I, I haven't seen Jimmy. I apologize. I'm, I'm trying to look it up on the fly. How much did they shave off the regular season to sh- sort of shoehorn this thing in there? Because it's not the 82-game full regular season with the cup added on. So I don't know how much of a haircut we have in overall games of the regular season, right? I don't know if it's just a minor, like, 78 games. That stands out in my memory, but I don't know. I don't know. Factually, I'll I'll have to get that answer for you guys if you don't know it. Yeah, I I don't have it offhand. I do know from the initial release that when the knockout rounds occur, which is December 6th and December 8th, in-season tournament games, like we mentioned, are going to count as part of the regular season too. But there's going to be 22 teams that don't make it to the qualify or don't qualify for the knockout rounds. They're going to play two regular season contests ah. over that span. So okay. I think it's going to map out in such a way that the majority of, if not the entirety, of the start to finish NBA Cup is covered by regular season games. In the NFL or in the NBA, and then uh-huh. if you didn't qualify that far, you're still playing regular season game just against teams that were bounced from the NBA Cup uh-huh. already. I think at least that's what the way I'm wow. reading it. That's so random. So think about that. Like think at the planning that goes into it. Normally, when you see a schedule, it's all 82 games, and if you want to go to a game, you start to pinpoint which game that might be. And now, because of the NBA Cup, if you don't qualify for the knockout stage. You just pick up another random regular season game, so it's like, oh, hey, the Bulls are in town. Like, you want to go see it? <laughs> Is that what we're doing here? It says that from the from the release, every game counts towards the regular season standings. And again, th- there's no increase of 82, right? This is it. It's 82 games, an 82-game regular season with the NBA Cup taking up some of those games. So every game counts for regular season standings, except 
the one where the stats don't count, which is the championship <laughs> game. So there you have it. Everything else is just part of the regular season, but with the NBA Cup mantra, except that championship game. That's separate. It's a different category. Prestige off the wow. top. Wow. So that's we get our answer there. December 9th. It still makes no sense, but we get our answer. Everything counts except the most important game. <laughs> sure. That's what we're taking away from this. Imagine if this, too. That's going to be a punchline as well, Jimmy. Imagine if, I don't know, Steph Curry goes off for 50 points in an NBA Cup triumph and that doesn't count statistically. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Or Clay Thompson hits 11 threes. I don't know. Just something crazy happens. Doesn't actually count statistically. It goes in the NBA Cup highlight montage the following yeah. year. That's where it belongs. By the way, so teams are going to get an 80-game schedule, including the four group stage games in the next few weeks. This is from CBS News. Teams that don't make the playoff, that's what I mentioned, the knockout round of the in-season tournament, will play two games that will fill their missing two games from their 82-game schedule against other non-knockout teams <laughs> December 6th and December 8th. So, yes, it very much is. Uh, let's see. Okay, uh, the Kings didn't make it, and then uh, the Hawks didn't make it. Okay, yeah. there's one matchup there. Okay, the Bulls, the Thunder, they didn't make it. All right, there's another one. That, that's how it's going to be taken care of. Okay. <laughs> Two mystery games in an 80-game right. schedule. Yeah. There you go. That's your lottery right there. <laughs> you know, how good is the team that you might want to go see in person? Oh, man. Craziness. Okay, coming up next. Look, Larry Bird was a great trash talker, Jimmy. We all know this. This might be another level of trash talking that we have just witnessed. We'll have details of that for you right around the corner. I'm Brian No, He's Jimmy Cook. It's 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. I'm Brian No, He's Jimmy Cook here on The Fan. Man, I love me some trash talking, Jimmy. You big trash talking fan over there? Love to embrace a little trash talk. Absolutely. I'm a big fan, man. I can't get enough of these like trash talking stories from back in the day. But this is Jerry West, the logo, <laughs> right? Jerry logo with some epic retirement trash talk. He's been retired for decades, and this is what Jerry West had to say. Competitive people, the word dog comes up a lot. That guy's a dog. That guy, well, I was a wolf, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I used to eat dog. (laughs) (laughs) You kidding? That's awesome. Oh, that's so good right there. (laughs) I saw that clip, and... The the highlight that's on TikTok or on Twitter doesn't show the question that was asked. So the way it's presented, and maybe this is how it happened live, was it was just unprompted. Like he just brings up the fact, you know, a lot of guys, you know, they say they got the dog in him, and then he mentions that he's a wolf. I just wonder how long Jerry West had that in the chamber. Was it off the top of the head? Has he been sitting on this for the last couple of weeks, knowing he had this speaking engagement? Like, I wonder, because it's top shelf trash talking, but I always get curious if it's off the dome or if it's, say, he had that one sitting waiting in the wings. You know, I I could picture Jerry West just thinking this. And I don't know, maybe many times, maybe sometime recently, where he's just sitting at home and some... Some random player in today's NBA said this or said this about another player in today's game. Like, oh, that guy's a dog. You got to have some dogs on your squad. And he's just sitting there in, I don't know, his living room, his man cave, wherever he is. And he's just thinking to himself, you know, 
I hear a lot of this talk about dogs these days. I was a wolf. That's what I I was a wolf. Just the thought process of how he's putting this together is even better than him just <laughs> sharing it with everyone. I love it. And look, he was fantastic as a basketball player. And I think it was LeBron that put it out there where he was like, facts, zero lies told here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he was a wolf as a player. He didn't have the championship success. Has, I think, what, the one ring? Yep. But uh, a lot of finals losses. But as an individual player, yeah, he was a wolf. I also find it very cool that that that's the first time I've heard a public athlete use that wolf comparison, right? It's not like he's borrowing from somebody. It's a unique new twist on the old always got that dog in a mentality. So yeah, I mean, even if even if somebody gave that to him, even if he didn't come up with it on his own, it's the first time I've heard it publicly like that. And I'm, I'm curious if this just goes by the wayside or if you hear somebody on a on an NBA postgame interview at some point say they got that wolf in them now. Do we, do we elevate this? Is it Does it become an apex predator type thing where now everybody is going one step above dog, wolf, and, and we're going to have lions soon. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm very I, curious to see where, where it goes. That's right. This could be a whole new thing. <laughs> I think of Denzel in Training Day who said, are you a wolf or a sheep? And that whole uh, scene right there. Yep. Have you seen that movie? I have. I have. Yep. Oh, tremendous movie. It's one of my top five movies. I love Training Day. Fantastic. Do you have Training Day in your top five, Jimmy? I don't know if it's in the top five, but it's definitely up there. I mean, I'll watch anything with Denzel, right? I'm also a big actor guy. Like, anytime a, an actor that I, I really love is in something, I'm probably going to give it a look. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. That was a nice way of saying, no, it's not in my top it five. It was. You're right. I didn't want to fully <laughs> I didn't fully break your spirit, but no, it's not in my top five, Ryan. No. No. What would be in your top five off the top of your head? Um, Not in any particular order. Uh, uh-huh. I'm, I'm a big fan of sci-fi stuff so like any really? of the star okay. wars is going to be up in that top five yeah um i'm a sucker for uh like drama or thriller based movies so like anything christopher nolan is probably going to be up there um i really like oceans 11 even though at this point yeah. like it's it at the time though for what it was and the twist ending at the end like it, yeah I, I really love those type of like high stakes heist movies uh so yeah i mean that, that's just a couple just off the dome I would say um, action movies more so than anything. So I would go like with uh, Gladiator was a great sure. movie. Um, I love the mob movies. Love Goodfellas, mm-hmm. which is just a masterpiece. But stuff like that would be in my top five. And Training Day is just a sensational movie. So it's a personal top five. I'm not saying it's one of the top five right. f- films uh, ever created. But in my personal top five, yeah, it's there. Uh, while we're talking trash talking, how about this? David Ross. Cubs manager. <laughs> this is uh, some top-level trash talking, so you can hear this faintly in the background of the Yankees broadcast on Yes Network. So Cubs manager David Ross, he's saying to the home plate umpire, after he got tossed in the first inning, David Ross got the gate, and he goes to this home plate umpire, and he says, you got one GD game before you get a break, and you're that effing bad already? Why? And then you hear Michael K at the end. Here you go. You got one two before the break. Did I, bat <laughs> I mean, you can't hear it very well, but that trust me, that is what he's saying. And audio doesn't do it justice. When you see the lips, you know, like when you see him 
eye to eye, nose to nose with the home plate umpire, and you can read the lips. It's on a different level, but uh, man, those umps. Like, he already got tossed, and the ump just has to take it. Yep. He's just got to take this verbal assault, and that's just the way the game is, you know? It was, and this is all I want to talk about with that series, because otherwise it was very forgetful oh. for a number of different reasons. <laughs> but one of the storylines that didn't get talked about enough that is now all over these headlines across the board is David Ross now has four ejections this season. Aaron Boone, five. So you have oh, two wow. managers that, at least this season alone – very unafraid of being tossed from games. And also, when you look at, I don't know if it'll be remembered as much as this other one was, but you had Aaron Boone a couple years ago talking about how he has savages in the box. And he had that great profanity-litten rant against uh, whoever the umpire was at the time. I don't know if this is quite that level, but just epic levels of trash talk of oh you got you're on the day off is on the horizon and this is how horrific you are at your job (laughs) just master class from david ross i would like to know from umpires today who which manager gives you the worst tongue lashing you know i mean you've already ejected them you've already already run them and it's like oh baby this is not gonna be good you know who's at the top of the list and who's at the bottom of the list Who's like kind of mild in terms of the tongue lash? And we're like, that wasn't that bad at all. I would love to know those answers. All right, we're going to get some answers from Jeremiah Johnson coming up around the corner. We're talking some Pacers. Does a great job on the sidelines over there and beyond. That's on the way. I'm Brian No, He's Jimmy Cook. It's 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. I'm Brian No, He's Jimmy Cook. Here on The Fan, I want to welcome in Jeremiah Johnson. Pacers sidelines over there at Bally Sports. Uh, Jeremiah, good afternoon to you, buddy. Um, we were just talking trash about this new NBA Cup, the in-season tournament. We are just poo-pooing it left and right. Do you? Uh, are, are you a little bit more optimistic, a little more upbeat about this thing than Jimmy and I are? Well, I'm not like throwing a parade about the idea, but I'm not kicking it right away to the curb. I mean, think about November and December. Uh, much of the discussion probably on these airwaves might be about football, and I think the NBA is looking for something to get a little of the attention. And I think those early weeks of December, once college football kind of winds down a little bit, you're looking for something to be interested in. And and I think if it spices up some of those November and December games, I'm I'm interested to see what happens. I don't think it'll replace the the NBA champion. If you win the cup, I don't think they're going to necessarily put that on the top line of your resume. But I think it'll be fun to watch, and I see no reason – why you wouldn't try it, but you guys are grumpy old men, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> We're very grumpy. I was just thinking, and I hear you. Trust me, Jeremiah. I hear you on that. But it's almost like if football is like a, a beautiful girl, right? Like that's getting the attention. And so let's say there's another girl, and she wants attention, and she's like, you know, I'm going to wear new socks. You know, like that's not going to get the attention of anybody. That's what I think this tournament is. <laughs> Well, we have a little saying when we're doing our pregame show that we can't show standings until after Christmas. Well, this gives us something to talk about because if you're playing that Tuesday night game against Detroit, then you have a, a reason to show the Cubs standings. And if you lose twice, you're pretty much out, right? I mean, it, so it does add some, some importance. And I, I heard some people um, being negative about the amount of money that was at stake and saying that those guys – you know, they make so much money, 500000 isn't a big deal. I don't know. I mean, maybe the top one or two paid players on each team, but I, I still think $500,000 is a lot of money. And I think that uh, it, we've seen this week 
there are a lot of guys that are out in Las Vegas that aren't playing games, but they found a reason to want to get out there. So I, I think a lot of people would enjoy uh, a Final Four atmosphere in Las Vegas in, in early December. And, you know, I, I'm willing to see how it goes. I'm willing to give it a chance. I ask that you guys do the same. JJ, how weird is the process going to be for teams that miss out on the knockout rounds and are eliminated in group play, knowing that in a couple weeks they're going to get an 80-game schedule, but then there's going to be two games that aren't listed there because if you don't make the knockout rounds, you're going to make up those games via the other teams that aren't in the knockout rounds of the NBA Cup. How, how weird is that going to be from your perspective and both from the team standpoint with that just unique aspect of two games missing from the schedule? Yeah, Jimmy, I think with the old phrase we would use in August is Larry Bird never cared about schedule release day because you'd say there's 82 games, you play 41 at home and 41 on the road. Well, actually, this year it's not going to be the case. Um, and I don't know the answer to the question. That wasn't really a big part of the pomp and circumstance of the, of the announcement of this event last week that they had in Las Vegas. So it will be a little bit of a to-be-determined, and um, the schedule will have to see what happens for everyone that's not playing in Las Vegas that first weekend of December. So uh, I'm not sure that I know the answer to the question just yet, but I am really interested to see how it all breaks down when they do release that schedule in August and, and just kind of to see who goes where and, and which of those games are the, the cup games and then um, how it affects the rest of the schedule. How about the the games going on in Vegas right now in the Summer League, Jeremiah? Is there anything that you take away from what you've seen from the Pacers that could apply to the regular season? Well, I, you want to see guys, first and foremost, that have played a full NBA season go to Las Vegas and look like they're head and shoulders above the rookies and the guys that are trying to make the league. And I think we saw opening night for the Pacers. We saw Benedict Mather and we saw Andrew Nembhard, guys that really stood out. They looked like they were NBA players and the other guys were trying to be like them. And that's basically what you want. Now, uh, could there be a little bit more well-roundedness to Benedict Mathern's game? We know he can score. I'd like to see a little bit more playmaking. We'll see if that can happen tonight. I don't know that he'll play uh, much more after tonight, so I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does. But Isaiah Jackson, I'll throw him in to the mix as well as one of those guys that you want to see look like a vet out there against some of the rookies. Uh, but Jairus Walker, to me, even though the, the field goal percentage wasn't uh, as good as you'd, you maybe would hope for, let's not nitpick that and let's look at the all-around game and I think from day one, whether he starts or whether he comes off the bench, I think that'll be up to the coaching staff. I think he'll be a contributor. And that's what you also want from a, a, someone that you drafted in the top ten of the lottery. And, you know, whether he's someone that you can count on down the stretch, late in games, you'll get those opportunities in summer league, and then we'll see what, how, he, how he fares with those. But uh, the big takeaways would be the obvious ones, that the, the veterans look like they – stood out and then the rookies look like they belong i see maybe a little bit more opportunity for ben shepherd he got a lot of playing time but a lot of times it felt like he was in the corner just kind of waiting uh not not trying to do too much not trying to fit in i think is what he probably did best but i'd like to see him get a little more opportunity tonight in the rest of the week JJ, how beneficial is this whole stretch of 10 days for guys on two-way deals or close to that area? A guy like Oscar Shibway, for instance. I mean, from what we've seen from him, both the college ranks and a little bit here in Summer League and why the reason the Pacers liked him as, a, as an undrafted signing is he's a rebounding machine. Well, what type of opportunity is present for a guy like Shibway? It's a big opportunity, but he already has that contract. So I think one thing you have to be careful is not to – put too much pressure on any one game in Las Vegas or even in this 
you know, one or two week period of time because he's going to be with the Pacers going into training camp. He's going to get those opportunities to play against guys like Miles Turner and let's say Daniel Tice and Jalen Smith. He's going to play against those guys in practice. So just try to make a positive first step with the organization in summer league and continue to do what you do best. He, as you noted, is an outstanding rebounder. Continue to do that and then work on the other facets of the game that maybe were one of the reasons that uh, the Pacers got him undrafted and that he did not you know, get picked in the first or the second round. I'm sure he has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder still. I think personally, I mentioned battles in practice in October and, and September. Seeing Shibway and Jarris Walker go at each other, that's going to be a lot of fun. So, I mean, I think those are two guys that will increase the toughness, the tenacity, the rebounding ability of a team that has lacked in that area for, let's be honest, a number of years. So continue to to do the best you can at, at getting every loose ball, every rebound, and then see how things go. But it is a great opportunity. I just don't think any one game you can't – like if he has a bad game tonight, fans shouldn't say, well, see, he's – He's no good. And that's what I think the summer league, you'll see guys like Wembenyama. I mean, the first game, his stat line wasn't too good. Second game, he improved. And that's what you'll see a lot over the course of the week here in Las Vegas. He's Jeremiah Johnson, Pacers sidelines at Bally Sports. Do you ever disagree or at least are you surprised that some second-year players are playing summer league games? Or maybe it's just the load management day and age, Jeremiah, where I look at a guy like Ben Matherin where he averaged 28 and a half minutes per night over 78 games. And I'm not saying I flat out disagree with him being out there, but are, are you ever just sort of like, man, not even a Pacers thing. You're like, oh, wow, that guy's playing in the summer league. Do you ever have that takeaway? I was a little surprised. And then you add in Andrew Nemhard and the number of games that he started as well. And you thought those were two guys that had shown what they could do at the NBA level. And maybe you could say they don't have as much to gain, maybe more to lose from an injury perspective in summer league. But I think it helps the acclimation of the guys they'll be playing with in the future to have them out there, to have them on the court with Jairus Walker and Ben Shepard so they get that first experience. And the other thing, I think it's just changed a lot. Maybe four or five years ago, you would have never had those guys there. Now you think about the amount of time they still play in the summer. You'd rather them play in that environment, I think, mm-hmm. in summer league than, than go to some of these pro-ams. Um, uh, the Drew League, I mean, I don't know if some of those guys maybe still do that, but uh, they're going to be playing anyways uh, in a regulated environment, and then it's good for their uh, branding as well. I know Ben Matherin had a nice meet-and-greet with fans, and really the whole Las Vegas Summer League, it's turned into an NBA convention. So if you've got a chance to go out there and, and show what you can do and put up 20 or 30 against uh, some other Summer League guys, it can only help you, and I do think it's better for the entire staff the rest of the team and so i see nothing but positives but that being said we'll see after tonight if nemhard and and matherin uh, are going to play any more games jj you knew going into this offseason and we've all known the pacers ideally would like to take a leap forward next year to the play in perhaps even a secured playoff spot when you looked at where the needs were for this team both going into the draft and with free agency now at least major deals in the rear view how did you feel they attacked both those aspects of the offseason and where do you feel that foundation is now those moves have been made I think going back to last December or January when I come on one of the, one of the shows on this network the question would be what do the Pacers still need to do what do they need to add and and even if that question was posed to Kevin Pritchard or Chad Buchanan they've been pretty honest in saying they need help on the wing and on the in the front court 
and they need to improve defensively. And while maybe they didn't get the 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 highest profile of free agent or maybe their trades that they made weren't the ones that are on the top page of ESPN.com, I don't think you can argue with the fact that they improved defensively, they got better on the wing, and they're going to be rebounding better. They, they're, they're a more well-rounded team right now. And they still have the flexibility and opportunity if a big trade does happen, whether it's a surprise trade in July or August or maybe prior to the trade deadline or maybe you're waiting until next offseason. You still have all the assets that you had going into to this offseason. You have a lot of flexibility still. And you're going to be better. You're going to be a team that is more appealing, I think, to another star player after you see what they're able to do and the steps they're able to take forward this upcoming season. So I think Obi Toppin is the kind of player that can really blossom with Tyrese Halliburton. I think Bruce Brown Jr. is the kind of guy that can fit with any team. But all of a sudden, he's the kind of guy when the going gets tough, he can be another voice in the locker room. He's respected. He's durable. It's important as well. And so and you can fit him into a number of different positions. You'll see what happens. And you're still, I think, looking for your best you know, maybe seven guys, you're still adding to that a little bit. If you're thinking this is a team that in two or three years can be, you know, competing to try to be a home court advantage team and a, a, you know, contender for an Eastern conference finals or an NBA finals, you're not there yet, but I do think you took some steps forward and you still have the opportunity to make some significant steps when the opportunity comes. Jeremiah Johnson with us, Pacers sidelines at Valley sports. So, Ellie De La Cruz. I'm going to take you to baseball for a second. I'll weave it back to the NBA. So Ellie De La Cruz, he stole second and then stole third and then stole home. <laughs> All in the same plate appearance, basically. And um, the, the commentator for Bally Sports Ohio, as he was stealing home, said, the most thrilling man in the entire sport. And it got me thinking, if you relate that to the NBA, who off the top of your head, not necessarily the best player, or, or the you know most successful, the most thrilling? Who do you think the most thrilling player in the NBA would be right now? Wow, that's a great question. I think you got to go to the younger generation, right? Because the older guys, we've kind of seen what they can do. If you see Giannis going coast to coast and, and throwing one down, I mean, that's maybe a comparison to Ellie De La Cruz. But, but if you want to go to some of the younger players, that's where you, you see things that you – you hadn't seen before, and so um, it's put him on the spot a little bit. But I mean, let's just go with Levin Yama right now. I mean, mm. some of the things he does, things that you see on Twitter, and then you say, "I'm not sure I've seen that before." And that would be the comparison maybe with Ellie De La Cruz. But I want to, when you brought up the Ellie De La Cruz play, it got me thinking actually on Saturday to a Pacer, and it's not a direct answer to your question, but it it he caught the pitcher napping right. Mm-hmm. Like he just kind of forgot about that he was over there. And the Pacers do have one guy that catches players napping on, on a regular basis, and that's T.J. McConnell. <laughs> he steals that pass out of after a made basket, 92 feet from, you know, I'm sure it's on the scouting report, and they go, oh, he did it again. I'm wondering if in baseball it's going to be on the scouting report. Every time he's on third base, you got to look at him before you're walking back to the rubber. But occasionally someone might forget and Elliot David Cruz is going to steal home. So my comparison to the Elliot David Cruz play would be the T.J. McConnell. He catches him napping. He does something they're not expecting. Um, but I don't know that I would call him in the same thrilling category as Elliot David Cruz. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that McConnell answer is so great. I mean, j- j- just a thief of, of equal presence for sure. It often doesn't get the type of love that he deserves from that national perspective. Another player I would have gone with just in terms of electricity and just, oh, how did he do that, is the maestro capabilities of Tyrese Halliburton. And you're very familiar with that. Obviously, J.J., your time with the team throughout the course of the regular season. But as you look at since you've been a part of Bally and since you've covered and followed the Pacers, a very instrumental part of building any core is long-term buy-in from your superstar players. They get that with that rookie designation signed by Tyrese Halliburton. How big is that both for the franchise and, and just this new era of Pacers basketball they're hoping to be a part of? I think it's good. And the best part was that it didn't come to a shock to anyone that it happened yeah. and that um, some of his reactions uh, that he even posted on social media before the press conference and then the emotion that he had at the press conference it didn't surprise us, but it also, I think, uh, you know, backed up everything that you had seen in a year and a half since the trade. It was a tough trade for Tyrese Halliburton to go from Sacramento, a place that he thought he was laying a foundation, to Indiana. But he quickly turned the page, and he quickly understood the opportunity that he had. And now when you bring up the Indiana Pacers, I mean, you've seen on the broadcast this past weekend, he's the guy people want to interview. And I don't think there's anyone else you would want have answering those questions to, to talking to other players around the league. I mean, he's going to be going and playing on Team USA here in the next month or two. And to have that representation, uh, you can't put a price on that. And so uh, the Pacers are in a really good spot. Just being able to travel with the team last season again after a couple of seasons not being with them, on the buses to shoot around after games, the vibe and the personality that he added to the team just makes everything better. Uh, he's a guy that wants to win. So after losses, it's not going to be as good of a vibe, but he's able to kind of quickly get everybody refocused. And uh, I can really tell the camaraderie on the team that they had last season, that Tyrese Halliburton was such a big part of it. And then uh, I think he's some of the reason guys like Bruce Brown Jr. Now he got a lot of money, so that, that helps as well. <laughs> um, but, but he and Obi Toppin, I mean, some of the reasons they're so excited to be here is because of Tyrese Halliburton. And now, you know, with that contract, Halliburton's going to be here for a long time. Jeremiah, before you go, you're a positive guy. I mean, this is a compliment. You're positive about the uh, in-season tournament when Jimmy and I are talking smack about it. We're grumpy old men. What makes you grumpy? Could be anything. What's something that gets under your skin? <laughs> there are a few things. Um, when the camera's on, I'm always positive. You're right. And now I'm, I'm on because I'm on the radio, but... Uh, you know what? You got a few hours left in your show. Let me let me think about that. I'm going to text Jimmy a couple of things. Because, okay. You know the sun's shining in Zionsville right now, and uh-huh. all I had on my agenda was to talk to you today, and then watch the Pacers on TV tonight outside of a few errands running around town. So I don't have a lot of complaints, but. Uh, a few will come to mind. So that's let perfect. Me get back with you. I'll, I'll send those to you, and you guys can debate those in the two o'clock hour. Okay, yeah, that sounds great, Jeremiah. But <laughs> hey, you crushed it today. I love that. Nothing top of mind. Like I, I'm feeling great. Like, like, why that, are you bringing me down? That's a no, pro, that's you know, a pro I move. Time to uh, at Shelbyville on Saturday at the Indiana Derby, but. My horse Hayes Strike in the Indiana Derby got out of the gate slow, and that really frustrated me. Yeah. So that, that's, that's, that's there right now, but you'll have that. Okay, and if there are more, please text Jimmy because we'd, <laughs> we'd like to throw that out there. But, hey, you crushed it, Jeremiah. Really good to visit with you today, bud.
All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, JJ. Thank you. There he is, Jeremiah Johnson, Pacer Sidelines at Valley Sports. How about you, Jimmy? You are, and I mean this as a compliment, you are a very positive guy. You are not, you're good to be around. You know, there are always those people that you might work with that it's like, oh, I'm tired, uh, this, uh, whatever it is. They're complaining about everything. You're not that guy. So let me bring that side out of you. <laughs> okay. What makes you grumpy? What, what would be on your list, Jimmy? Uh, much like Jeremiah, there's not a ton, but I'm not going to leave you hanging. And, and pro move, by the way, with Very JJ, pro. because yeah. it does two things. It cuts off that question right at the head, but also it prevents listeners from perhaps heckling or hassling JJ next time they see him with all that gets underneath that guy's skin. So now he, he may or may not actually text. I'm not counting on it, but he may or may not actually text me with those type of pet peeves. And it, it might not go over the air, depending on when he does it. For me, it, there's only two real things that bother me, and I've gotten better about one of them. Uh-huh. Uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say road rage, but I get annoyed Ooh. with little people like, you know, don't have a turn signal when you cut across. Like, if you're going to cut across me, okay, that's accepted <laughs> at times during traffic, but at least have the common decency to flash the turn signal. Like, that, that bugs me to no end. And then uh, I'm a massive sports fan, so, like, whenever... Even though, like, yes, I am that guy where I couldn't be doing half of what you're doing. But if you're on a team I root for and you're not perfect in situations where you have to be perfect, <laughs> it annoys me. Like a routine fly ball or, you know, just a, I don't know, booting a would-be double play at, fr- uh, at second base they yesterday. Were up 4-1, being up Jimmy. 4-1, to one, uh, that led to the game being tied because of that error. May or may not be the fifth such error by one second baseman, Glaber Torres. Maybe that. I don't know. Did you have cash on that? As well? uh, not a ton, just a little, oh, little man. Because, the, but there was cash on it. There was, uh, there was something on there. Uh, that's yeah. rough, Jimmy. Well, you and I, we we can certainly relate. Lost bets. That is a surefire mm-hmm. way for me to get grumpy real fast. So, especially a lost bet when it's looking beautiful. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's rough, Jimmy. I don't want to tell you these horror stories over here, but I had. I'll, I'll give you a brief story. All okay, right. you would love this as a better. So um, I had um, multiple parlays. This is normally how horror stories begin. This was last Tuesday. I believe it was. I had uh, the last leg was the Brewers against the Cubs. Okay. Just an outrageously gut-wrenching beat where the Brewers, it goes, uh, they're down 6-2. So I'm like, it's not happening. They tie it up. It's six apiece. It's going to extras. Cubs don't score in the top of the 10th. I'm like, we're in business, baby. (laughs) So base hit. The third base coach sends the runner. He's out by like five steps, Jimmy. (laughs) And then the runner on first tries to go to second. He gets thrown out. So out of the inning, it could have ended the game. At worst, if he doesn't send him, it's first and third with one out. Instead, double play. We go to the 11th. (sighs) The Cubs scratch out a run with two outs. The Brewers send a runner again, tagging up. The same guy, Ian Happ, throws him out at the plate. I lose. So I lost about 100 bucks. would have won over 500 So it's a $625 swing. Brutal. So what happens? Next day, I was doing fill-in stuff for a Milwaukee station. I tell this story. The guy, guy named Brian Butch, he played basketball at Wisconsin. He said, I, I was like, uh, would you, would you pay? I was tongue in cheek. I'm like, would you, uh, would you spot me a hundred bucks that I lost? He's like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and so Jimmy, I make all these random parlay bets. I'm doing round robins. I'm doing all of this, like, like high reward, but long odds type stuff. I'm five for five. 
Okay? Oh, no. There are eight games. One gets rained out, the Blue Jays. I'm five for five otherwise. These other two picks. Uh, Someone talked me from the station into betting the the Brewers over. That didn't hit. But I'm still alive. We're still going to cash a couple hundred bucks at least if the Diamondbacks hold on. They're leading, Jimmy, one nothing in the ninth. The Mets are down to their final strike. Solo shot. (laughs) Tie game. They go on to scratch out another run. They win 2-1. They were down to their last strike in a 1-0 game, Jimmy, and it went haywire. Two things there. First, that would be good enough for me for the Diamondbacks to be on my do not bet list for a while out of spite. Like that that, off the top, that that would be enough there. But the second thing, you know, that's a very rough, brutal story. And sometimes whenever you're in bad beats or whenever you're in a situation where, you know, the sports world's got you down or life's got you down. You need a pick-me-up. And a great place for a pick-me-up is the fan on the back nine golf outing. August 18th <laughs> from 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Eastern. Listen to this, Brian. Sounds great to me. I don't know about you. If I'm needing to pick-me-up golf, food, tournament-style games, all at back nine golf and entertainment, Kevin Bowen's going to be out there. Jake Query's going to be out there. Your ticket benefits the American Heart Association, who's trying to protect the hearts you love. Could be protecting your heart if it just got broken by a bad same game parlay or multi-leg parlay you know what i mean check in's gonna be 10 a.m lunch will be provided one things get kicked off at 11 right with jmv is gonna have a live broadcast there three to six and a silent auction that's something where you could compete from another bidding standpoint your bets are just in auction format how about that sports memorabilia one of a kind experiences and it's a great way to start a weekend early because it's Friday, August 18th, 10 a.m. to 4.30, Back Nine Golf and Entertainment Center. You can get tickets right now at 1075thefan.com, Bino. Man, I'm telling you, you are a true pro. I feel better already. <laughs> like, screw <laughs> the Brewers. Out for you. Yeah, the on. heck with the Diamondbacks. I don't care about any of that all of a sudden is uh, what you laid out there. Very well done. Very well done by you. Okay, we got a lot to do here, Jimmy. We got to weave our way back to the most thrilling man conversation if we're looking at hoops if we're looking at the nfl who would be at the top of the list in the thrill department we'll compare notes i'm brian no he's jimmy cook it's 93.5 and 107.5 the fan i'm brian no he's jimmy cook here on the fan okay so i'm curious what you have on your list here we were talking about ellie de la cruz who is a thrilling player with the cincinnati reds who have won 50 games at the break, which hardly anybody saw coming, me included. I would assume you as well, Jimmy, right? Yeah, uh, no. Well, it was not not a front runner on that. Even if I wanted insights on that, when I went to Great American in May, uh, the, the talk was not positive and rainbows and butterflies among Cincinnati Reds fans. It was, oh, we'll probably just get a sell-off over we end up calling up soon anyway. So, I mean, yeah, no. Couldn't have had any insights possible on that, Brian. No shot. Yep. But anyway, Ellie De La Cruz is a thrilling player. He's been sensational, hitting well over 300. Power numbers, speed, like excitability. He's been sensational. He stole second, third, and home on Saturday. And the commentator for Bally Sports Ohio said, the most thrilling man in the entire sport. And so it got us thinking about baseball. I would go Team Shohei. You're on De La Cruz. What if we look at the NFL? Of all the players, not a, not necessarily the best, although that could be in the thrilling department. It does. It's not a prerequisite. Who would you say is the most thrilling? Where I'm thinking of it, if you go to a game, especially in person, you're just going, "Wow, this, <laughs> I can't believe he just did that." 
Who would be at the top of your list? Yeah, I guess this is one of the rare instances where the best player in the league is also the most electric player yeah. because it's Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I think that Lamar Jackson is a thrilling player. And that's what's interesting about this conversation to me is that there's no doubt Lamar is thrilling. Now, when you separate thrilling from production, like that's where yeah. there's a, a huge difference between Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson. You just look at the last couple of seasons alone. Like Lamar, he's throwing like 33 touchdowns, 20 picks, mm-hmm. somewhat combined the last two seasons, somewhere around there. Uh, Mahomes, he wouldn't be caught dead with those numbers, no. like no. With, with body parts falling off. You know what I mean? Like he's just a, a much better quarterback. He's the best in the game right now. But you're right. When you look at Mahomes, the playmaking ability, the weird arm angles, the pirouette, he's throwing like Kareem sky hooks to running backs for touchdowns. It's insane. He is. He's the most thrilling guy, and he happens to be the best. If I'm going outside the quarterback realm, because that's so often where conversations could start and end in the NFL, I, I will give credit, and a lot of it has to do with Joe Burrow, but... Like Jamar Chase is one of my favorite wide receivers to watch yeah. in the National Football League. His ability to high point the ball, to get separation, to just out muscle corner. Like I, I love Jamar Chase. Justin Jefferson probably belongs in that conversation mm-hmm. as well. I mean, there's a lot. Tyreek Hill. Yeah. There are exceptional wide receivers. Where if I'm looking at man, like that's can't like the reason that the Dolphins. And you know, I've talked about this before, are on my must-see weekly basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, no disrespect to your quarterback. It's not because of Tua. It's because of the <laughs> weapons that are around him. Like, I, I love the idea on a weekly basis of seeing what Jalen Waddle or Tyreek Hill are going to do out there. No, I hear you. Tyreek Hill especially, because that dude, it's the speed mixed with the quickness. Because he has great straight-line speed. But the cuts he makes also, that guy has wow speed. Mm-hmm. And you see it on the football field. You're just like, wow, that dude. It's the reason why they call him the cheetah and not the pickup truck. Right, you know what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> How about defensively? Who would be on your most thrilling defensive player list where you start thinking about some of these playmakers like, oh, I don't know, Sauce Gardner or Micah Parsons? rushing the quarterback Nick Bosa rushing the QB who would you be who would you have on your most thrilling defender list so active right now if we're just going off last season like ordinarily be Aaron Donald because he's much he's much CTV yeah. his ability to just toss around offensive linemen like they're just pillows is phenomenal you know a setback year for him last year the Rams were a mess to begin with yeah I mean I sauce is must see for me I've always liked Jalen Ramsey I mean what he's going to look like getting another Miami player there I feel I feel biased with all this though, man, because I let off with Mahomes, and mm-hmm. yeah, now of course my second answer when you ask me the defensive side of the ball because I watch him every week is Chris Jones. I mean, it, it, mm. this is a contract year for him. He is on that level, maybe not like at the same step, but he's a couple steps behind Aaron Donald in terms of defensive trench players that can totally flip a game upside down. That, that, that's what Colts fans, not to that level, but again, a couple steps below that, they see it at DeForest Buckner. So I, I would probably go yeah. Jalen Ramsey, I just I, to get the Chiefs bias off the table, but I mean, even an unbiased person would look at Chris Jones and say, yeah, that's a game wrecker. That's someone I can label as a piece that can really turn things on its head when you need him to.
Man, you're really talking when you are a thrilling defensive tackle. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like Chris Jones or DeForest Buckner. You go back to like the John Randall old school yeah. Minnesota Vikings days or Warren Sapp. When you're Aaron Donald, when you're wrecking the game and doing it in thrilling fashion as a D tackle, man, that is something special. I also think what's exciting, Jimmy, is Anthony Richardson has true potential to be one of the more thrilling players. I don't know how consistent the guy is going to be, but just in terms of highlight real stuff, from time to time you're going to get some glimpses of this dude doing things that hardly anybody else on the planet can do. I think there's real potential for that to be the case. With And there's a clear separator, right? You mentioned Lamar Jackson. You look at Joe Burrow, you look at Josh Allen, you look at Patrick Mahomes, just three quarterbacks off the top that are viewed by many as some of the best, if not the best, in the National Football League. They take mind-boggling risks at times where you're like, why on earth did they? And then it works, and you're like, oh my goodness, I've never seen this before. With Lamar, too often over the last couple of seasons, he came into the league with that same, like, oh my God, jaw-dropping ability. Like, mm-hmm. I've never seen this before. But if it's offset by, like you mentioned, 22 yep. interceptions, yep. then it's no longer, oh man, he's he's gutsy enough to do that. It's, why is he doing that? Why is he taking those risks? It's not helping the team. That's the middle ground where you'd ideally like to see let's say Richardson's week seven starter, right? By the time you get to week 13 or week 14, if those flashes are there, you don't want them to be marred with, you know, negative stat lines like fumbles or 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 poor pass percentage or interceptions. Not that aren't allowed to be done by rookies, but that are to a level where it's like, okay, we really need to revisit the chances you're taking. That's not the label you want as a risk taker. You want it to be a positive, not a negative on your resume. Totally hear you. And what's interesting is that if you are a highlight reel, man, it earns you the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. many times when it shouldn't. When it should. Yes. <laughs> like, Lamar Jackson is a great example where highlight reel plays, special talent. The athletic ability, escapability, sometimes passing ability, just not consistently. But over the last two years, 33 touchdown passes, 20 interceptions. And it was built up before he got his contract extension as if it was some really funny business. What's going on with Lamar not getting a fully guaranteed contract? It's like, what? Have we stepped into the twilight zone? What are we talking about here? But when you can make highlight real plays, often it will earn you the benefit of the doubt many times when you don't deserve it. And uh, I think it's Lamar's case in point with that. And I'm curious how it differs between fans of the team and like non-fans of the team. Because let's just say Anthony Richardson, to your point, Jimmy, he's producing some of these highlight reel plays, but in Lamar fashion, the consistency is lacking. As a Colts fan, how are they looking at it and how does it differ possibly from a national perspective? Because there can be a difference there sometimes. Well, a lot of it is marinated in where the content is being consumed from, right? Like your highlight reel in today's generation, if they're not watching SportsCenter, at least for me, and I reference this pretty frequently, it's my social media consumption. So for instance, what am I getting on Twitter? Am I getting SportsCenter's like cut up, you you know, uh, curated set of highlights from the past weekend that again are just all flashes of greatness from this player? Or am I seeing a real... Not even a full game, but just like uh, this was what the whole drive was. Not just that one play encapsulated in. 
players can throw up top 10 plays all the time in any sport, but it's a matter of, and especially at that quarterback position, is your overall body of work more than just the highlight plays and utter dominance of the game? And you've seen that now. You've seen it over time, but of this generation of quarterbacks, you've seen it from Patrick Mahomes. You've seen it from Joe Burrow. You've seen it from Josh Allen. You've seen it over the course of Aaron Rodgers' career, regardless of what he's going to be in New York. You know they're capable of it. For these younger players like Trevor Lawrence, like whatever Anthony Richardson winds up being, Jalen Hurts is probably closer to Josh Allen and Mahomes than he is the Trevor Lawrence conversation, but you get what I mean. Once you've done it once, you need consistency over Mm -hmm. an entirety of multiple years, and that gets lost over a weekend highlight package that just shows you some great throws that were made. Oh, what was the final score? Oh, they lost by 20. Okay, well, maybe maybe we shouldn't be praising set like if Justin Fields has a highlight play where he runs for a 65 yard touchdown but yeah. the Bears lost 21 to 10 yep. I'm gonna need to see more of his on-field production and some more than just that highlights to know if he's a good quarterback you know it's true is there are a lot of people that are watching fewer and fewer and fewer games mm-hmm. And they are literally just going by the highlights. I love those highlight packages on SportsCenter where it's just all of one team. They do this in basketball all the time where it's like, it's three-pointer was made. Oh, look at this dunk. They lost by 10. <laughs> That's like, what? what? Somewhere in there, the other yeah. team was making some shots, I'm pretty sure. But Wembenyama with the slam, but the Nuggets win it 104-75. to 75. Yep. What? Well, I'm yeah. sorry. Well, what are we doing here? Yeah, you'll get that. How about if we look at the NBA? Not necessarily the best. The most thrilling. Who would you say the most thrilling NBA player is right now? It's still Steph for me. It is for me, too. I, we, we line up on that one. We line up with Mahomes and Steph Curry. We're against each other on Shohei and Ellie <laughs> De La Cruz. But I, you think about what makes Steph so special in my mind, Jimmy, is most of the guys on my list of most thrilling in the NBA have just some sensational athletic ability. And that's not Steph. Steph has outstanding skill. He's got great handles. He's an exception. He's the greatest shooter of all time. We all know that. But the shot-making ability and just that wow factor right there, without the raw athleticism, I think that's unbelievable that you could make that argument about Steph being the most thrilling. That's who I think it is. Because if I'm watching him in person and the shots he's making – it's just different than anybody else. You need, just like the NFL, if it's a highlight reel maker that's doing things you've never seen before, you need it to lead to success. Joe Burrow has been to a Super Bowl. Josh Allen has yet to get the bills over that hump, but he's capable of doing it. Mahomes has two Lombardi trophies to show for it. With Steph Curry, it's that same thing, right? If you're a player that just has flashy plays in the basketball court, you get lost, you get forgotten. But it's regardless of the level of competition, he's able to get separation and find windows of opportunity that other players aren't capable of, let alone players of his size. And that that's just a, a jumping off point. There's other things of his game, his vision, his ability to yeah. kind of finesse his way for those driving layups. Like he does it in every different way from a scoring perspective. And in the same way that, And Steph is one of one, right? There's not really a true player that does things exactly the way he does. But in the same way that the running back is getting phased out of the NFL, not from a compensation standpoint, but just from 10 or 15 years ago, might have been LaDainian Tomlinson, might have been Mm. Priest Holmes, might have been Sean Alexander of a name that you would come up with of my favorite, most electric player in the 
NFL. That shift has happened in the NBA where it's no longer just highlight dunks that make my jaw drop to the floor. I want stuff I've never seen before. And the type of separation in his complete game that Steph's able to get with 35, 40 footers and beyond, yeah, it's breathtaking. Yeah, it is. And you know what's interesting too is um, if you look at who just won a championship, Nikola Jokic, he does not play a thrilling style no. of basketball. And so, right, what does it really get you? Like, thrilling's great. It could be awesome. It could lead to great success, but it's not a prerequisite. So I think sometimes we put thrilling on a pedestal when it's like Jokic is a great example of a guy who is just steady. He's a playmaker. He's the best passing big man of all time for my money. He's an outstanding offensive player. He's a good rebounder. He does pretty much everything really well or great. Like he's not a bad defender, but all the other stuff offensively, he is off the charts. He just doesn't have this captivating style. He doesn't have this raw athletic ability that makes you say, whoa. He, he makes some wild plays here and there, but it just it looks different. And so wow is great. Thrilling is great, but it doesn't automatically lead to great success. Yeah, and again, I, I know that because I'm in that same boat with you, right? Like the main area where I really was captivated by it was when we got down to the high stakes medal rounds, the conference finals and, and the NBA finals, which at the end of the day is all Nikola Jokic maybe cares about, but all the Denver Nuggets as a franchise really care about is are we lifting a trophy or are we not? From an NBA fan's perspective, we're talking about what on a nightly basis electrifies you the most and regrettably he is not the first player I'm going to to go see and tune into. Now, that said, everything you outlined from his passing ability to a shot that it looks like, oh, why is he jacking that? Oh, it's yeah. nothing but nylon. Oh, he got that to go. Wow. How did he How did he get enough separation to get that shot off? Like he has all of those tools there. It just for whatever reason is not as sexy and clean yeah. as your Steph Curry's of the world. Yeah, just not as flashy. But man, if you're looking for flash... The NBA's got a lot of it. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at John Morant or Kyrie Irving, who has just a beautiful game, there's a lot to choose from. And and it's also really your cup of tea also because Luka is a little bit like Jokic, where he doesn't have that catch-your-eye, just raw athleticism, but Luka does some things like the step-back ability, some of the passes, he made a pass. I was at the game against the Pacers where he was falling out of bounds and then just th- threw the ball overhand along the entire baseline, hit a guy, the guy makes a shot. It was one of the best plays I've ever seen. But it just it looks different because there isn't that Derrick Rose-like athleticism yeah. when he was winning an MVP with the Bulls. It just looks different. Yeah, and it's, it's so well put because there, there's just not an aspect of it where – it's constantly grabbing you with Luca, yeah. right? Like there are those moments in those windows where like late game, he's a player that, yeah, he's going to be taking that last shot and he's able to get good enough separation and have the ability as a ball handler to light it up and have a highlight player too. But it's over the course of the entire game, where are you getting the most bang for your buck? Where are you going to see plays from start to finish that, you know, make you lose your mind about it? And right now, I, I, th- I think it is still Steph. I know we're both in agreement on that, but it's just, it's over the course of the entirety of the game, 
Where, that's the NBA's issue, right? That's why they have the NBA Cup is they want more eyeballs <laughs> on their nightly games. Not everybody can have franchise generational players, but the ones that are lucky enough to have it, and it's what the Pacers kind of hope is there with Tyrese Halliburton as this thing's come together in a different way with his passing skills and scoring ability. Why do I want to tune in? Because of that player. And Steph, yeah, it's at the top of that list for me. All right, coming up next, how thinking outside the box failed miserably. This probably will make you laugh. It made me laugh. We'll share that with you. I'm Brian No, He's Jimmy Cook. It's 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. I'm Brian No, He's Jimmy Cook here on The Fan. Man, Jimmy, uh, there was something that happened in Wimbledon that I find hysterical. So, <laughs> some match in the fifth set. It's the fifth set tiebreaker here. It's 8-8, okay? So we're getting down to the nitty-gritty. And our man Alejandro Davidovich Fakina, he goes with the old underhanded, underarmed serve, right? Like instead of throwing the ball high in the air and smashing it as hard as he can, he goes underhand. A little okey-doke. And this is how it sounded. Compliments of Wimbledon. An underhanded serve. But it goes against the man who executed it. And Holger Rune has match points. I mean, I've seen some decisions in my life, but I have never seen something like that. An underarm serve at eight hall. <laughs> Just fails miserably, Jimmy. He went underarmed. And he lost the point. It was match point. The other guy won the match. The oh. next point. <laughs> Dude. I, to me, I was trying to come up with the comparison here. You tell me if this is legit or not. I go to basketball. I think this would be like a huge game, right? This is Wimbledon here, right? So this is a huge, probably NBA playoff game. It's a tie game very late, very little time remaining. And a good free throw shooter says, you know what? I'm going to go underhanded here. <laughs> And he misses. And he misses this huge free throw. It's like, what were you doing there, man? Like, it didn't work out at all. Yeah, I mean, so I'll be honest with you. Cards on the table. Brian and I sometimes share what we're going to talk about on the show, and sometimes we do it organically like this. (laughs) I I, I had not seen this highlight until Brian was just bringing it up to me. So now I've seen the play. uh, SI.com is covering Wimbledon. So I've seen the underhand serve. And he's done it once before. Line at Wimbledon, but just somewhere else in his career, and it worked out so at, at the U.S. Open, I guess. So like maybe wow. it's one of those things in your bag where you're like, "Oh, I could do this." So we're gonna catch him totally off guard. But in that one, it worked. In this instance, it did it. And on yeah. the grandest stage of them all with Wimbledon, that has to work. Like it, <laughs> it can't backfire on you the way it did for him. It is a all risk, put it out there, tightrope walk, and he fell to his face. You know what? Maybe he was thinking. Because he lost the final five points. He was up 8-5 in the fifth set tiebreaker. So he loses three in a row. It's 8-8. And he says, you know what? I got to stop the bleeding. I'm, I'm reaching deep into the bag of tricks right here. Let's go underarm. And it did not work. <laughs> it did not work. And uh, the match came to a close the very next point. Unreal, man. All right, coming up next, we have Charlie Clifford. 
He covers the Reds and the Bengals. We got a lot to cover with uh, Charlie. Does he think De La Cruz is the man as far as uh, thrilling? Where does Joe Burrow rank? We got a lot to do. That's on the way. I'm Brian. No, he's Jimmy Cook. It's 93.5 and 107.5, the fan. I'm Brian. No, he's Jimmy Cook here on the fan. Man, you're just bringing up horror stories a second ago. Yeah, now Jimmy. I understand. I Googled it. I'm very sorry that I brought uh, that up for you. It's not what I was trying to do. Man, oh, man. Let the people know. Let so, the people know. So I was making an observation of score bugs. It's a history uh, NFL greatest games type setup on NFL Network, and it is Dolphins and the Jets in week eight of the 2000 season. And my takeaway I was going to share with Brian was I love when score bugs get unique on the nicknames, and they actually spelled out Finns. F-I-N-S in the scorebook. Not Dolphins, not M-I-A, Fins, and that made me chuckle. And I told him, I don't know the significance of this game. I'm just sharing it with you. Uh, oh. The Monday night miracle, Jets scored 30 points in the fourth quarter, <laughs> tying the score, setting the game into overtime, and defeated the Fins 40-37. to Brian, a noted Dolphins fan. That's my oh. bad. I apologize. That's- oh, it's no problem at all. It's uh, I'll never forget because... I was watching the game at my dad's house, and I forget, the Dolphins were up, I think a million to three is what it was, <laughs> and the Jets come all the way, but we're watching that first half, we're like, this is awesome, this is unbelievable, like, the freaking Jets are getting crushed, and then Jumbo Elliott catches a pass, and uh, it was just awful, just awful, <laughs> oh, so awful, uh, but with that, Charlie Clifford's going to put me in a good mood, sports anchor covering the Reds. And Bengals at WLWT joins us here on the fan. Uh, Charlie, what's going on, man? Uh, is there a game off the top of your head that gives you indigestion the same way this game that Jimmy brought up with me being a Dolphins fan? Well, it wouldn't be that game, Bri, because I grew up a Jet fan. And <laughs> oh, I had man. multiple Clifford <laughs> uncles in section 343 that night at the Meadowlands. Oh. My dad made me go to bed. And we woke up the next day and he said, you are not going to believe what happened after I made you go to bed. So that, in my Jets hierarchy, okay, you have the Mark Sanchez-led team that uh-huh. beat the Colts in what turned out to be Peyton Manning's last game, then went into New England, beat Belichick, went to the AFC Championship game, lost to Big Ben and the Steelers. Uh, you know, that's number one. And then Jumbo Elliott stuff, you know, we're, we're pretty much at number two there. That's how great it is to be a Jets fan. So uh, how are you guys doing? Thanks for having me. Doing good. I didn't know this was going to come full circle. How about that? <laughs> yeah, no. I, I'm but, just thinking of true, true feelings like that of, of pain and misery. It would be the Bartman game in 03. Oh, I yeah. still remember where I was sitting in my folks, you know, TV room, the neighbors were all over. Um, and then the, you know, people always forget that was only game six. Then you came back game seven, Kerry Woods on the mound. We're fine. It's going to be all right. Kerry Wood hits a home run early in that game. And then the Marlins just pile it on. And until, you know, just a handful of years ago, that was, you know, the worst night of my life. Man, Charlie, I, I care. I swear things are going to get better between you and me. This is a horrible way for us to start, but I got to be honest here. So my dad grew up just outside of St. Louis in this town called Alton, Illinois. So he's a Cardinals fan. He passed it down to me. We're diehard Cardinals fans. Sorry to hear that. I remember watching the Bartman game. I was living in L.A. I was watching a little five-inch TV, 
And I'm like, I'm just sick to my stomach with the Cubs about to go to the World Series. And then Bartman, Gonzalez. I've called my dad and we're just like, that was unbelievable. Can you believe it? It's like polar opposites, man. Unreal, Charlie. Yeah, the key word in that sentence there was about to go to the World Series. And, uh, yeah, you know, look, tough summer for you and uh, a nice transition to the great people in Cincinnati here who are, you know, look, the expectation here was the Reds were going to be in last heading in the All-Star break. The Cards were going to be the team that, you know, has all this talent that's ready to go right now. I'm just as stunned as everyone is. Mm. I mean, this has been a total flip of the script that I would have guessed back in March. Yeah, it really is crazy because I was looking at this, Charlie, where, like you said, what a difference one year makes. Last year, the Cardinals finished 31 games ahead of the Reds. And at the break, the Reds lead the Cardinals by 11 and a half. If you had told me that would be the scenario here, I would have thought you were the biggest moron on the face of the earth. But here we are. (laughs) It's been the storybook summer out here. You know, it feels like there's something in the water. We've been joking that Major League Soccer teams in first place, obviously the expectation is the Bengals are going to contend again in the AFC. So it's, a you know, selfishly a nice time to be out here in a city that hasn't enjoyed much success as you look back, you know, really over the past two-plus decades. Um, and here you are with – I mean, you guys tell me what your thoughts on Ellie De La Cruz. I mean, the good mm-hmm. news for the organization is they have a ton of young talent. It's not just him. It's not all banked on his shoulders. But from a marketing standpoint, I mean, I saw him pop up the other day in a Mission Impossible ad or whatever. I mean, he will be one of the faces in baseball, you know, essentially overnight, which is, um, you know, that's, it's tough to do. You know, this isn't, this isn't a, this isn't a semi-pro league here. We have established names and bigger markets, but he's that electrifying. And he, he, you know, someone, okay. Are you actually going to buy a ticket to watch this guy play? He absolutely checks that box. And there just aren't that many players like that in pro sports. Charlie, we talked about this earlier, 27 and 33 when De La Cruz was promoted from the minors on June 6th. They're 23 and 7 since then. Now a two-game lead over the NL Central. And the discussion Brian and I were having to start the show is now expectations really shift towards ownership and knowing that, okay, this is a team that is a perennial seller at the deadline the last couple of years. Now all of a sudden they're in buyer territory. How much is that felt within the Cincinnati fan base and how aggressive do you expect them to be over the next couple of weeks as they evaluate what they need to do to, to make a real run here this season at the deadline? Yeah, I wouldn't say they're in territory. I mean, they're in buyer mode. Right. They have the financial flexibility, which that was the big question. You know, Nick Kroll, the general manager here, was told ahead of last season, hey, they won this central in the pandemic-shortened season. It was a nice story, but guess what? We do not have the financial ammo to re-sign some of these guys, to keep some players like Nick Castellanos around. So they went into fire sale mode, and that did not go over well around here. Obviously, last year losing 100 games was the most painful part of that. But now that 
the tenor has reversed. Crawl has gone on the record. He, they have the money to make the moves. And I think this team over the past month proved to ownership that they are for real. I mean, the pitching staff, they went into last week having allowed the third most runs in the National League. I mean, if you look at the pitching stats from the starting staff specifically, this team shouldn't be anywhere near, you know, playoff talk. But they are because this lineup, specifically with the way they run the bases, most steals in all baseball going into the break, they've proven, hey, if you can – you can give us five five plus innings. We can find ways to win games late. The bullpen's been very solid. Alexis Diaz is the only All Star. He's the second year closer who's only blown one all season. So I think there's little question they're going to add at least one arm. I would guess a starting pitcher because Hunter Green and Nick Lodolo, two people who are expected to be the one two in this rotation, Lodolo's been out since late May Hunter Green's been out almost a month uh there's little murky you know reports about their futures they're down in Arizona right now August at the earliest for both of them to come back so this little this lineup's earned at least go out get someone who can be in the middle of that rotation who can weather the storm here a little bit. I would expect that at a minimum here ahead of the deadline for the Reds. He's Charlie Clifford, sports anchor at WLWT, joining us here on The Fan. After De La Cruz stole second, third, and home on Saturday against the Brewers, the Valley Sports Ohio play-by-play guy said, the most thrilling man in the entire sport (laughs) And I thought there's certainly an argument to be made that he is that. I would go with Shohei Otani. He's doing something nobody else is doing. Who would you, in your honest heart of hearts, say is more thrilling between De La Cruz and Shohei? Well, if you're in that sentence, you're you're doing something right. No, I think from a five-tool perspective, it is the most entertaining version because it's the speed. It, It goes back to what this game was built on running the bases, having action in between pitches, not just watching a ball fly 420 feet and, you know, a guy circling the bases 60 times. As fun as Aaron Judge's season was last year, can you really remember moments that stuck out? Or You know, even right now, we're less than a year removed, and that was an incredible achievement that the American League hasn't seen in, what, over half a century, and Judge's an absolutely incredible player, but you're talking about a steal of home. We're talking about the cycle he put up in his third week in the big leagues. He's hit homers as far as judge has. He throws 96 miles an hour across the diamond and plays on third base. Uh, It's no one who can do a little bit of everything we're talking about with the exception of Otani. You know, I think if you're a purist, this guy is Babe Ruth. I mean, he's he's one of the best pitchers. He's one of the best power hitters. This shouldn't work with how the game is played and all the talent. So I don't know if you can say one or the other, but the fact that there there's now a conversation and a debate, it's a beautiful thing for baseball because they need that. Baseball has become such a regionalized sport where if you're in a market, that passion's still there but the overlapping national 
you know, fever pitch about what's going on in Major League Baseball that just it isn't around. And maybe this can be one of, you know, the talents that starts to bring baseball back into the national picture. Because if you're if you're in a baseball town in the summer, it's fun. I mean, I know, you know, with the cards and um, Jay Cook, I don't know. I know you're a Yankee homer and just a fair and well. Fairweather fan, so maybe yeah, you know. By the way, that, uh, 62 instances of highlight memories were created last year. Just to just to clarify uh, that earlier statement, but I mean, no. It, look, it, you're right. It, both styles of play in both aspects of Otani and Ellie De La Cruz make them the electric players that they are. But but to your point, Charlie, yeah, I mean, the fact that he's only been in the major leagues for a little over a month, and that's a conversation in terms of being a captivating player on a nightly basis, that he's up there at the top of the sport already, speaks to the impact that he's already had. You're right, and I just think everybody wins. I mean, unless you're going head-to-head with the Reds, if you like, if you love baseball, it's just a story that I think is easy to get behind. And... um it's a small market team with a tiny payroll with, that has a great history that's in the right division at the right time. I don't I don't know if they're going to have the firepower when it all comes together in the fall. The Braves look so good. The Dodgers, you know, they're un, until they're toppled. You know, I don't, I don't know what that's going to look like, but this thing's certainly heading in the right direction here, which is which is great for Cincy, which was you know, the longest standing franchise in baseball. It means a lot to these people here, and it's just cool to see that. It's it's amazing, Charlie, how much things have changed in that city as of late because the Bengals were a doormat for three decades. The The Reds have been brutal for a long time, and now all of a sudden the Reds are buyers. They're in the mix to win the division, and now for the Bengals – is it truly championship or bust? Have they risen to that territory now? Yeah, it is. It is. And, you, you know, a lot of pain that, to get there, right? I mean, the season, even Burrow's rookie season, uh, two wins the year before. You know, Zach Taylor, when you look at the first few years, he was in charge, credit management for sticking with him because that win-loss record was as bad as it can get as a head coach. So, you know, it's it's not a fluke. They they found the right pieces. They found you know they they hit the right quarterback year when Burrow was available, and then at the skill position spot, they've absolutely nailed it. They've prioritized it, and it's paid off. Um, and it's just a great you know organization behind the scenes. They have the small scouting department there is, and they've found ways to develop within their own, and then also through free agency to bring in the right players at the right time. The big question here is left tackle Orlando Brown. You know, is this going to finally solidify Joe Burrow's offensive line for the first time in his career? You know, that, that, and then in the secondary, they lost a couple safeties, which, you know, if you're playing Mahomes and Allen and Lamar at the end of the year, you know, that can be the one or two plays that changes whether you're going to Vegas for the big one in February or you're watching it at home. So certainly, just fun to be around that and um look bringing it back to the colts i mean if richardson can get some help and that can go well this thing this thing can flip pretty quickly once you have that piece of the puzzle and i know jim ursay knows that better than anybody so i'm i'm hopeful for everybody back there so many great people who go to west 56th street every day you know i i, I hope that um 
it can be a momentous summer that can lead to, you know, a surprise season. Cause I know expectations are, are much different than they were the past few years with, with all the quarterbacks that came through that, that tried to make it work after luck. Well, Hey man, Charlie, good stuff. I'm sorry about our dolphins jets rivalry, our Cardinals <laughs> Cubs rivalry. I feel like our budding friendship. Well, there's only room to go up from where exactly. we started. Right? Yeah. 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 We start here. We're good. We can talk about <laughs> anything now. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, bud. Have a good day. We'll catch you later. Sounds good. Jimbo miss you guys. Uh, Thanks. You guys got a great producer on the phone here, too. I, I think you should keep him around. Nice. I, I appreciate that. I miss you, too, Charlie. Very See good. Bye. See you. There he is, Charlie Clifford, WLWT sports anchor, covers the Reds and Bengals. How about that? A little uh, vote of confidence for our guy, Nate. Very nice. Hey, look, we we only have the best. Nathaniel coming in off the bench this week in relief for Eddie Garrison and doing an outstanding job. I think they bonded over metal. I think that's what it was. They were talking heavy metal where Charlie was like, oh, man, I'm a huge Slayer fan. And Nate was like, oh, yeah, me too. Pantera, love them. You know, I, I don't know. That's what I'm envisioning. I mean, there are certain problems that people come up with in their daily lives. And sometimes, you know, peace and prosperity would go a long way with just a little dose of metal. I, 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 I'm right there with you. Hey, by the way, you got an update from Jeremiah Johnson <laughs> over there on the sidelines. Valley Sports covering the Pacers. He did. He texted you back some things that make him grumpy, right? He did. So we got we got two from Jeremiah Johnson. His number one sports TV gripe is whenever he turns on the national sports networks around this time, May, June, July, and it's debates about the Dallas Cowboys every single day <laughs> as if it's some important topic that everybody cares about. Uh, uh-huh. I, I don't disagree with him there. I, I find that just as annoying. And then, and this one goes back to the new rules in the NBA, flopping is one of the things that oh. upsets him the most in the NBA. He, quote, is looking forward to seeing a potential crackdown on it this upcoming season. Okay, that works. Yeah, those blank. are those are good uh, gripes. Things that make you grumpy. The cowboy topics, huh? Like, you know what? What's funny about this time of year is Jimmy. There are times where we have a lot to talk about. Believe it or not, you know, even right now where it's the All Star break, but we're we're to the gills with stuff to talk about today. But there are certain topics you and I talked about movies for maybe a minute and a mm-hmm. half. You know what I mean? But someone, just based on the calendar, they're going to be like, nothing to talk about, yep. huh? Right? So you might have this Cowboys scorcher of a take today. You know, but based on it being July 10th, yeah. it's often going to be taken as like, oh, here we go again with the <laughs> Cowboys topic. So I'm not disagreeing with Jeremiah. I get it. I'm just telling you, sometimes there are things that are perceived to be filler, when it really isn't, you know, it's just funny how it works. That but way. I think there's thresholds with that, right? Like it, it, it shouldn't be perceived that way for local or even national talk radio because you're covering so many different bases. And, and maybe there's something that is that really eye catching from a Cowboys camp or Cowboys offseason that is in the news that needs to be talked about. My issue, Jeremiah's issue, I think sometimes your issue as well, is when it's a Monday through Friday saga, saga and it's the same different look at why 
Dak Prescott is now having a <laughs> I, I, I don't know why, why his hair is different for this particular week like it, it it gets to a point where yeah it feels like maybe they're stretching out and going for the you know uh cachet name versus a story that would be really interesting and engaging. I'm fine with once or twice, but he's right. There are too many weeks where is this the year the Cowboys figure? No, it's not. Let me tell you now. It's not the year they figure it out. No. I I don't know about that, Jimmy. I'm not sold. The NFC is wide open. That was a 12-5 and five football team last year. I'm telling you what, they are a sneaky, sneaky yep tough out this year. I know you could say that about the last half, you know, uh, quarter century. (laughs) And it didn't amount to anything. But, uh, you know, how about this, too? Um, This makes me think of uh, something I saw over the weekend and even last night. I want to throw it your way. And it it can eventually get back to one of uh, Jeremiah's um, uh, things that make him grumpy, right? But when Binyama, you tell me if this is too knee-jerk here, Jimmy is with Wembenyama, especially after his summer league debut. He was two for 13. I think he's the most scrutinized player in the NBA right now. And and that's not just here and now that's projecting when the regular season rolls around. I don't think anyone's going to be under the microscope more than this guy who enters the league with hype that rivals LeBron Mm -hmm. when he was the chosen one coming into the league. I don't think that we're going to be, looking at LeBron's box score as closely or Anthony Davis or anybody else you want to throw out there, I think he's the guy who's already the most scrutinized. Is that too knee-jerk for you, or, or do you think that's the case? No, I think it's clear-cut what it is because the the other side of the coin has now been flipped. You have all this hype, all this buildup, all this next-generational player going to take the lean by store mentality, and you see – it gets clicks, it gets traffic. Not to say it's not true, but it gets engagement. And so now you take that, whether it's in the summer league right now, whether it's when training camp happens or the brief NBA preseason games, now you have Wembenyama built in as something that people need to have opinions on, that people need to care about, to the point that you've had all the pump up and all the, oh, this guy's great, and now the tide's going to shift to, I mean, who, who, what were we being sold about this guy? He, he can't even score more than seven points in a summer league game. Like, <laughs> that is the avenue that's opened up to a fault now. And it's already his second game of NBA variety in summer league. And that's just now. Wait until we're getting close to the all-star break and where the oh. Spurs are from a playoff standpoint. He's going to be, as long as he continues to succeed to some extent, he is going to be in that same Jeremiah Johnson repetitive news cycle of LeBron, of Aaron Rodgers, of St- Webinyama is going to be in that same traction of what talking heads are going on about to a fault now because he's under a yeah. microscope now that he's here in the league. Right, and he got dunked on by someone named Kai Jones. I had never heard of Kai Jones before he dunked on <laughs> Wembenyama, right? But imagine when the regular season rolls around and Wemby gets dunked on by a star. Uh-huh. Like it's just gonna go from there, man. Like, it, okay, so if we look at the NFL, there are two guys at the top of my list most scrutinized. Okay, just every little move they make is dissected, just under the microscope. I think it's Dak Prescott. Yep. Sorry, Jeremiah Johnson. (laughs) I think it's Dak, and I think it's going to be Aaron Rodgers this year. Where you think of Aaron going to a new team, 
in the Big Apple. I mean, that, that writes itself. But Dak, who doesn't have a championship, he doesn't have a ring like Aaron Rodgers does, and he plays for America's team with that type of scrutiny, stinking it up royally, two interceptions against the Niners last year. I think Dak is under the biggest microscope. The, the spotlight is brightest on him because he has faltered more. Is that fair to say he's more scrutinized than Aaron Rodgers? I think that it is fair to say. I think that you also outlined it well that Rodgers has the opportunity to take back that title from him because he's in a bigger market now, because this is a must-win, chips-all-in type of deal with the New York Jets to where I think he could surpass Dak this year. But I want to throw out one more candidate that I feel like if he isn't already, is going to be heavily scrutinized nationally this year, and that's Josh Allen. And it's Josh mm-hmm. Allen because yeah. his two other counterparts in the AFC, Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes, have at a minimum been to a conference championship game, have a step further, been to a Super Bowl, and of course mm-hmm. Mahomes has won two of them. Josh Allen, right or wrong, I think he is a top five quarterback in the National Football League. I would even go as far as to say, top three. It's him, it's Joe Burrow, and it's Josh Allen. I'm willing to hear Jalen Hurts as well, but he's in that conversation for a reason. Where is the hardware to back that up? And Mm -hmm. there's been enough missteps, not his fault, but there's been enough missteps in the postseason to where that tide is going to turn of all the praise for Josh Allen along with Burrow and Mahomes where does this guy really belong in that list? I think that happens this year in Buffalo depending on how their season goes. Okay, and now let's bring it back to Indy over mm-hmm. here. Okay, if we're talking about scrutiny, look at the rookie quarterbacks. Look at Anthony Richardson. Now, I would argue, Jimmy, he's not going to be as scrutinized as a guy like Bryce Young, former Heisman winner, came from Alabama, the football factory as of mm-hmm. right now, the brand name. And. Carolina traded a boatload to get the guy. They jump up from nine to number one, get him, send picks galore, send DJ Moore. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of scrutiny there. I also would argue that C.J. Stroud going number two overall. The Ohio State, bigger brand name right now than the Florida Gators, right? And C.J. Stroud doing what he did on the college football playoff stage against Georgia He's got more cachet. He's a bigger name than Anthony Richardson right now. Not all bad, Mm -hmm. because as far as the scrutiny goes, I think the scrutiny is greater for Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud. I don't want to make it sound like Anthony Richardson isn't going to be scrutinized, because he will. He's an NFL quarterback, and he's a top-five pick. He will be scrutinized. Not as greatly, though. And I think that difference can be helpful. Do you buy any of that? The part that he'll be less scrutinized, the part that it can be beneficial to him, or all of it? So, I think he'll be less scrutinized than the number one and number two picks. Yes, yep. Not to the point where we never talk about him, we never criticize him. Like, he's not even, (laughs) you don't even know he exists right now. He's an NFL quarterback. I don't want to take it that far. But I think the scrutiny not being as great when you are, especially with the lack of experience, when you are trying to find your niche and fit in and get comfortable. I think the scrutiny being less for him than it is for the top two picks, I think that can help him start to get more comfortable sooner. 
Yeah, I mean, anytime you're going into a high-pressure cooker situation, you don't want to add extra elements of stress. And a lot of people will point to, oh, it's just chatter on the television. Well, why does it matter? It, it matters to a lot of players because they value both their image and what they're trying to craft as a potential all-time great someday. Again, I'm not saying any of these rookies are going to be that, but that's what they're shooting for. They're not right. just in the league to get a paycheck. They want to be a part of something special and leave an impact in the history books and for their franchise. But there is an advantage to be said there, and I agree with you on that, of he's already popping in every now and again in the in the sprinkles that you have of, oh, let's look at Colts camp. And Anthony Richardson's there because he's probably the biggest story at camp nationally. He might be challenged for that title depending on how public these Jonathan Taylor negotiations go. But outside of that, it's Anthony Richardson. But it's a backseat to clear, defined no question about it, they're starting week one starters like Bryce Young and like C.J. Stroud. That doesn't mean, oh, don't start him week one because now the pressure is going to be there. No, it just means there's more talking points towards those guys because they're definitively starting week one and also they were taken higher in the draft with a little more established pedigree yeah. and expectations on their shoulders. Yeah, and hey, man, if you compare it to a couple of years ago, compare Anthony Richardson trying to make it as a member of the Colts, compared to Zach Wilson trying to make it as a member of the Jets. Yeah. In that media market, it's just a different animal. And so I think they're compared to the same draft where Mac Jones in Foxborough, you know what I mean, with Belichick and the next quarterback after Brady. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> tough, man. Like I don't want to make it sound like Anthony Richardson isn't trying to fill big shoes with Peyton Manning, Andrew Luck, I know it's largely been a disaster since luck, but uh, I, I think there are a couple of advantages for Anthony Richardson where the scrutiny isn't as great, and I think initially that can be helpful. With it all being said, I don't think it's going to matter. I don't think he's going to be a precise quarterback in the NFL. I don't think he's going to make it, but... I'm not rooting against the guy. I'm just saying he's got a couple of advantages built in where the scrutiny isn't as great. I think that's important initially when you're trying to get comfortable. There's not enough time in the segment for me to once again have that uh, Rams hitting horns of I do think he's going to make it, and I think there's a good foundation there to grow and build off of, but I'm I'm glass half full. You're glass half empty in that scenario. Totally fine, but the point remains about where the pressure lies and it's just it's a different animal when you look at what's in front of Anthony right. Richardson from that standpoint because of all the reasons we outline he'll be criticized at the local level like that'll oh, yeah. happen if they struggle but from a national perspective it's nowhere near a name we didn't mention and why it's good I guess that luck is not the name he's following he's following a long list of carousel quarterbacks that had no business being here in the first place outside of maybe Philip Rivers He's not following that like Jordan Love is trying to replace Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay this year. Yeah, like that's it's a different levels of expectations of pressure on yourself and of being required to succeed right out of the gate. Okay, Jimmy. So coming up next, crack research. Some really interesting stuff. You hear that defense wins championships all the time, right? Well, it didn't get you to the playoffs last season. We'll have some details on that for you. I'm Brian No, He's Jimmy Cook. It's 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. I'm Brian No, He's Jimmy Cook here on The Fan. Man, so I'm, uh, I'm just grabbing some audio of the MLB draft last night. I'm big on the chimes here, Jimmy. We'll, we'll close out the show on this. The chimes. The chimes are the same for the NFL and NBA drafts. You got to have different chimes, man. 
You can't have the same chime. You know what I'm saying? Like the, uh, you know, or it's like, same thing for the NBA and NFL. How is that a thing? It's different for the MLB draft. Where it's kind of like the baseball tonight, like the, yep. <laughs> you know, yep. like very good. We got to get different chimes for the uh, NFL and NBA draft. I'm glad you and I were on the same wavelength that because I was at a draft party with some family members just watching it all unfold. And, and by about the, yeah, after that first pick, I was like, what are we doing? Like This is the same carbon copy <laughs> as the NFL draft. I just want something new. I don't care if it's like a note or two change. I don't want the same same pick noise. I don't. And I yeah. couldn't go over to NBA TV because unlike what the NFL does, there's not an alternate option on like NFL Network. I was stuck there and it was like, okay, I guess this is just the same now as the NFL. Way to differentiate yourself. That's where the NBA Cup comes into play, my friend. They're playing chess, not checkers. There you go. Oh, man. There it is right there. Okay, we'll get you the chimes at the end of the show. Also, I've got Rob Manfred getting uh, <laughs> not so nicely greeted. But what would you say? When you head out, you're the commissioner, you're disliked, they're booing you like crazy. I think Goodell gets it right, where he's like, hey, everybody, here's Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey. Hi, Kansas City. You know what I mean? Like, you need meat shields to your left and right. That's important, a step-by-step process to take some of the boos away. Secondly, and you've seen it now, but you and I talked about it before the show started, Manfred as the draft wore on, looks to the point where he's going to yell at the crowd about booing him and and lose his mind. I would have called Roger Goodell a week ago if I was this naive about the fact that you'd be welcome with open arms when across the board, almost every other commissioner gets booed to no end at their respective drafts. I would have called Roger and be like, hey man, like looks like there's a mob coming after yeah. you in April. How do I handle this? Yeah, that you call have any tips? Made. Yeah, Goodell wouldn't be like, eh, just go out there by yourself, say welcome to the draft. They'll die down. Like, no, you gotta have something else there. Like, have a prominent player from that area. Have someone from the military, yep. you know, it's something. You need someone around you to shield the booze and keep the focus on the draft. We'll get that to you at the end here. Let's focus on this here, Jimmy. I went and looked at some interesting numbers here. So if we're looking at scoring defense and scoring offense from last season in the NFL, it reveals a lot of interesting things here. So if you look at the top 12 scoring offenses last year, how many of those teams would you guess made the playoffs? You said it was top 12? Top 12 scoring offenses. Seven. All 12. Wow. Wow. (laughs) It's unbelievable. You go down the list from 1 through 12. Chiefs, Eagles, Bills, Cowboys, Lions. I'm sorry. Lions didn't make it. My bad on that. Lions were fifth, so 11 of 12. Bengals, uh, Niners, Bengals, Vikings, Jags, Seahawks, Dolphins, Chargers. 11 of 12 made it. Now, there were two teams tied for 12th in scoring defense. So if you look at the top 13, of the top 13 scoring defenses, like don't allow a lot of points, right? Of the top 13 scoring defenses, how many of those teams do you think missed the playoffs? I'm going to say about a half. We'll say six. Close. Eight. Eight of the 13 
top scoring defenses missed the playoffs. Number two, Jets. Number three, Ravens. Number eight, Commanders. Number nine, Saints. Number 10, Steelers. 11, uh, Saints. I might have had this. I screwed up with the Saints. I'm going to double check that. Uh, 12th, Titans. And, and tied for 12th, Bengals. Uh, I'm sorry, Broncos. Uh, so, like, long story short is you got to score. Yes. You got to score points in today's NFL. It's not good enough just to play stingy defense if you're not scoring. Think about this. The Jets were number two in scoring defense, Jimmy. They missed the playoffs. The Ravens were number three in scoring defense. They missed the playoffs. And especially the Jets because they didn't have a, an injury like the Ravens did at QB. They just didn't play good enough offense. They had the number two scoring defense. They missed the playoffs altogether. You got to score. The, the way that the more dominant offensive teams, I'm looking more towards Kansas City, Cincinnati, uh, Buffalo, kind of. They're, they're, they have a pretty solid defense, too. But what you're seeing as these quarterback contracts start to unfold and you really have to balance your roster, if you have the generational quarterback set up, you still want to be able to add as many weapons, as many protection on the offensive line as possible. It's not to say you won't splurge every now and again on a Chris Jones or somebody like that, but you don't need your defense to be otherworldly to be able to make a run at the Lombardi Trophy. What you would like to ideally be is middle of the pack or above. Like Kansas City last year, they were a middle of the pack defense. The year before, they were closer to the bottom floor of the league. They just had a tiny bit of progression there over an offseason, and that's all it takes if you're a great team. If you're one of these teams that's living in the margins, it's tough if you're trapped between rebuild and trying to be a contender if you don't have the generational piece set up. That's why you see these numbers be flip-flopped the way that they are when you would think, ah, defense wins championships. There's got to be a high-level amount of playoff teams there. No, there's really not. It's a a club of lottery picks and and high-end level selections like the Denver Broncos, like the New Orleans Saints. The Jets are hoping they're out of that now with Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, it's crazy. And I, uh, to correct the error, I mixed up my N-O and N-E, meaning New Orleans New and New England. Yeah. So New England was one of those teams. They were 11th in scoring defense, didn't make the playoffs. This is also interesting too, Jimmy. If you look at the bottom of both scoring offense, scoring defense, two of the four worst scoring defenses still made the playoffs. The Vikings were 30th in scoring defense, and they got in. Uh, so one of the the bottom three. So you're 30th in the league, and you still got in, right? You still snuck in there. If you look at scoring offenses, the bottom 14 teams didn't make the playoffs <laughs> in scoring <laughs> offense. So if you're anywhere from 30 to you know the 20s not happening for you you have to go all the way up to if you're going from the bottom up right you got to get all the way to 18th with the giants you start looking at these teams the worst offenses denver dead last followed by indy and houston tied with 17 points scored per game jets titans rams steelers Bengals, commanders bears saints Cardinals, Ravens, Panthers. So there are 14 teams that didn't make the playoffs and they're at the bottom of scoring offense. You got to move the ball. So like some of these teams, like look at uh, Tampa last year, look at Green Bay. 
They're playing decent defense. They just didn't have good enough offense. You know, like, yep. <laughs> you've got to be able to move it or it's curtains, man. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that when you're looking at just the AFC Championship game last year, it, it you give credit where credit is due to the defensive side of the ball. There's no doubt about that. You, you, just like you need to be able to run the football effectively regardless of who's doing it by the time you get into the postseason, you need to have your defense meet you somewhere, right? Like, if they're bottom of the pack like the Vikings were at some point, or near the bottom of the pack, it's at some point going to come back and bite you. Last year in the AFC Championship game, it wasn't a matter of which defense was going to end up winning that contest. It was which one of those quarterbacks and those high-powered offenses was ultimately going to make the mistake. Now, granted, in that particular instance last year, the way that game ended was a defensive miscue and a, a, a roughing the passer, unnecessary roughness on the sideline. That's where it is in today's NFL. If you don't have that high-octane offense, you're not going to get a ticket to the dance, let alone make any noise in the postseason. Yeah, that's wild right there, man. And you look at the Colts. I mean, honest question, where do you think the bigger turnaround is going to be? Is it the Colts' offense, which was 30th in scoring, or is it the Colts' defense, which was 28th in scoring defense? I think it's the defense because you get Shaq Leonard back there. That's going to help out a good amount. I'm not expecting them to be top five or anything, but they aren't built around a, a rookie defender sure. that's the equivalent of Anthony Richardson. When A. Rich has had less than 400 snaps as a college player, and he's going to start a lot of games this year, I believe. Um yeah, I think it's. I think you're going to see more of an improvement from the the scoring defense than the scoring offense. You agree with that? You see it the same way? I think from a metric standpoint, and this is where we're getting into a little bit of weeds, but I think from a metric standpoint, the bigger leap will probably be on the defensive end because people think, and, and I've wanted to say this as well, that was a good Colts defense in terms of their ability to hold the tide throughout most of last year, but from a real metric standpoint, when you dive in and look at points per game and how much they were getting torn apart, yeah, being towards the bottom of the league is something that probably surprises a lot of Colts fans. So I think that'll bump up higher than the offense will. I think the offense will see a rise too, but in terms of the stuff that gets the attention that you see real growth from, I don't see a way, and you'll probably say I'm being naive with this, I don't see a true way things could get worse from an offensive discombobulation standpoint this year than they were last year. I just don't. Like I, I, All I need to do is put down the Thursday night football game with the Broncos and the Colts for you and say like that, that is my low bar. There's no way there's not a week-by-week <laughs> week improvement over that travesty that Al Michaels had to sit through. No shot. No way. I, you know, I hope you're right. <laughs> But I I just go back to last year. There's no way you could have come up to me with a straight face and said, yeah, Denver, who just traded for Russell Wilson, they're going to be dead last in scoring (laughs) offense. I would have looked at you like you've never watched one down of football in your entire life, you know? Yeah. And so my point is, shocking things can happen. Of course. And and while I think it's going to be tough, to be worse than 17 points per game, which is what the Colts gave you last season. With Shane Steichen coming in there, like that's night and day compared to an interim coach for a handful of games with Jeff Saturday and the offense was wreck, wreck uh, when that transition (laughs) took place. I I can't imagine it's worse than that. So I'm going to agree with you, Jimmy, although 
man, I, there are some surprises, and I still think it's going to be a rough season offensively. Yeah, I mean, look, they're, they're, I don't care that they have one of the easiest strength of schedules. Like, there's still so many question marks, particularly on the offensive end, where, where no, my, I'm, I think they could, sure, achieve the over six and a half win total. Like, I think that's possible, but but that's not the type of bar that fans of any franchise want to hear, right? They want their teams to win. They want success right away, and I get that. But a lot of things, fair or not, have been reset on, okay, let's just see one year of Anthony Richardson first to see what we're working with or however many games it is. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's going to be some massive get the ticker tape parade ready to go type of season for Anthony Richardson. But just like with the Pacers last year, I'm willing to, if I'm a Colts fan, stomach a non-playoff season this year provided I see foundational steps of okay this is a quarterback we can get behind doesn't even need to be Joe Burrow or Patrick Mahomes right away but this is a franchise quarterback I need to see that this year yeah well I hope so it's a low bar I mean it is but all you're looking for is progress and growth anything else on top of that like if they win 10 games for instance yeah then you're elated and you're over the moon but I, I don't I'm with you I don't see that as a there's going to be bumps and there's going to be some lowest of lows to accompany what you hope is some highest of highs. Okay. I'm hoping for the highest of highs with your picks today. Okay. (laughs) It's been a rough last week for yours. Truly. I'm expecting you to pull me out of the gutter here. Jay cook. I'm counting on you. We'll get you that. And a little bit of Manfred to have some fun before we get out of here. I'm Brian. No, he's Jimmy cook. It's 93, five and one Oh seven, five. The fan you my friend i come bearing gifts and his name is rob manfred huh the mlb commissioner and uh well the draft was last night oh by the way the draft was last night as far as the first round goes and uh, i don't know what else did they do beyond that jimmy more than one pick more than one round last I, night I, I i would love to tell you that i know but i was just watching occasionally for the booze and, and oh, uh, highlight clips so no i can't i can't tell you listen man i still have love for baseball don't get me wrong but it's disheartening is it not where in the nfl and i'm a football junkie We get months and months of lead up to the draft. It's burned into the beginning of your brain where it's April 28th. That's the first round. You know what I mean? And baseball, it's like, oh, by the way, first round's tonight. (laughs) Yeah, the first round of our draft, that's happening in uh, four hours. It's like, what? There's no buildup. But this was uh, Rob Manfred. Not exactly warmly greeted here. Now, rookie mistake, Jimmy. Rookie mistake. You gotta have some people around you. You know what I mean? You've gotta have a prominent Ken Griffey Jr. You're in <laughs> Seattle. Have him. Have somebody around. He just comes out bare. He's basically naked in front of the world getting booed. Here's Rob Manfred. Say hello to the commissioner, Rob Manfred, who takes the stage for the first time tonight. <laughs> On behalf of Major League Baseball, welcome to the 2023 draft. They got a couple of cheers. He's like, here's my game plan. I know they're going to boo me. I'm just going to say, hey, what's up? Welcome to the draft. And that's it. That's my game plan. (laughs) You got to have more than that, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't care if it's, like you mentioned, big-time players. I don't care if it's having... 
legacy players from different teams announce some of the picks to take some heat off of you. You need a way over the course of the night to stymie off some of that animosity that's thrown towards you, or at the very least, be more prepared for prepared for it than Rob Manfred was. I, I do want to say one thing on the whole matter, though, and, and we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, in the coming days, and, and John will hit on it as well, but shout out to Franklin's own Max yeah. Clark. He winds well, here's up the going thing. third. B- before you wax poetic, sure. let's get a little bit of Manfred announcing <laughs> Max Clark here. With the third pick of the 2023 MLB Draft, the Detroit Tigers select Max Clark, an outfielder from Franklin Community High School, Franklin, Indiana. That's pretty cool, man. I, I like that the patrons were kind enough for just the player to be announced to you know, be calm <laughs> for the booze for just a second and then <laughs> immediately rain them back down. By the way, uh, wasn't a big fan of the chime. but Did you hear? Listen did, very closely to the chime here, Jimmy. No? <laughs> I kind of liked it. It's okay because this is what we get with the NFL and N- NBA. Same chimes. You get a little personality with MLB right I there. I wanted a guitar there instead. That's I wanted instead of the chimes. I don't hate that at all. That's a great idea. But, man, go back to high school real fast before we get to your picks here, Jimmy. Think about being in high school. And being the number three overall pick in the MLB draft. Like, I would walk in like a peacock. Are you kidding me? Oh, yeah. Shout out to Max. Where he's in high school, man. And he just got taken third overall. That's awesome. 646, nine doubles, five triples, six homers. Gatorade National Player of the Year honors. And then to cap it all off, your hometown is there with you. Massive, massive draft party. And you get taken by the Tigers. I mean, just a, just an overall fantastic, one of those core iconic moments there for Max Clark. That is pretty cool, man. It is. And it's just so different than football, where you got to be three years removed from high mm-hmm. school to be drafted. And, uh, but at any rate, uh, shout out to Max. Not so much a shout out to Rob Manfred. His voice cracked a little bit too, Jimmy, when he was delivering yep. this. Uh, that's not, that's not uh, great. Where it's, welcome to the draft. On behalf of Major League Baseball, welcome to the 2023 draft. <laughs> All right, let's win some money. Let's get to your picks right here, Jimmy. What do you say? Let's do it. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me. All right. I'm not a f- athlete. This is my f- way. This is how I win. So off the top, I want to remind our listeners a couple bets from our own Eddie Garrison. He took Pete Alonzo outright to take this Ooh. thing. And then he has a couple of matchup bets, uh, including... Uh, Vladdy to make it all the way to the final. Vlad Guerrero Jr. to make it there. I actually have Vlad Guerrero Jr. as my winner. That at plus 370 juice tonight. I'm also going to take him over 480 and a half feet for his longest home run tonight. I like that. That's awesome. Going to ride as well with Julio Rodriguez over Pete Alonso in the first round matchup. That's plus 130 juice there. I'm taking under 490 and a half total feet for the longest home run, so we won't eclipse to 491. <laughs> and to close things out, give me over 276 and a half total home runs across the entirety of the contest. Wow, you go Grand Salami. Yep. Huh? I can just picture you with the moonshot like, uh, don't be more than 480, don't be more than 480. <laughs> I got bit by it last year. I'm going under this year. All right, JMV up next. Have a good one. Keep it locked here on The Fan.